0: You're listening to the Joelle Martin Mastery Podcast, home of the two hour deep dive interview with gold, platinum, and multi platinum bands, including Stained, Blue Rodeo, The Arkells, Finger Eleven, Big Wreck, Moist, Bedwin Sound Clash, iMother Earth, Ill Scarlet, Neverending White Lights, Thornley, and many more. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast as well as share, comment, and like. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We are joined by a very special guest. He's achieved a level of mastery as a member of the Platinum Selling and four-time Juno Award-winning band, The Sheepdogs. He's also a member of the Duo Bros. And if that's not enough, earlier this year, he released his debut solo album. So welcome to the podcast, Seamus Curry. Seamus, how are you? And is it true you released a card game that is based on your
1: concept album to further explore the lore there i'm good and yes that is true i uh had an idea to do like a merch item that was a trading card game uh it was a very nerdy idea but i finally pulled the trigger on it and went for it and it's uh it's pretty fun i gotta tell you <laughs> that's amazing so
0: i used to play magic the gathering when i was a kid it was my favorite thing in the world i don't know how i grew out of it or why i'm not still playing but i probably should be um i I believe that I saw that it's someone that had experience with the company. I think it's Wizards of the Coast that worked on Magic the Gathering. Is there truth to all that?
1: Yeah, he's my partner's stepbrother. He used to work for Wizards of the Coast. And I think he traveled for like Magic tournaments as some kind of like rule keeper or something like that. But he's got a real like math background and a real strong head for uh, coming up with a kind of like, I don't know, the... Uh, the nuts and bolts of the game, which is great. So he actually approached me with like, hey, if you can come up with this sort of like, you know, creative intel or the the sort of the lore of this game and populate it with like the, the background of your album, I can create you this game. And I was like, yes, absolutely. If you can do all the hard work, I can do the easy part. That That's amazing. So was it more
0: that he came up with like the rule set of how the game works or is it the artwork or is
1: someone else yeah. that did the amazing artwork? He basically came up with the framework of how the game worked and like the math behind it like you know you play this card at this time and it gives you this many points and blah 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 and all that which is great because i don't have the like math background to come up with like a game that's challenging and works in all those levels but uh i was able to come up with you know sticking song titles and coming up with fantasy characters and and like the like what the cards should be called and kind of that kind of stuff and the various factions of the game like You know, the stuff that I would have done as like a 12-year-old nerd making my own games anyway. (laughs) And then I called up Matt Dunlap, who does all the artwork for the Sheepdogs. He did all these posters and does all the album covers and stuff. And he did the artwork for my record. And uh, he was experimenting with uh, using AI as sort of like a quick and dirty way to to get, you know, good artwork. But the idea of of it being like a fantasy concept record and very like, you know, um, trippy and... uh, you know bizarre I think really like the AI art with all of its like limitations actually kind of lent itself well to creating like weird distorted images <laughs> and so he was really good at like feeding the prompts into the AI to create these kind of like cool things that were very like reminiscent of like you know 70s you know Led Zeppelin album covers and that kind of stuff and then he just like went with it and created all these great images and it was a lot cheaper than hiring an art team to draw you know 50 custom images <laughs> I can tell you that much but <laughs> that's true I hear that the
0: kind of the secret to happiness is cultivating that childlike wonder and I, I I feel like you developing that game and being a part of creating the rules and the artwork and everything I feel like you're able to 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 kind of be a
1: child again for for those moments absolutely yeah you tap into nostalgia which is a great way to keep you working on a project you know hours and hours and hours <laughs> but uh you know what do they say make it fun and then you never work a day in your life right so That was the goal.
0: Absolutely. So we we are going to do a full two-hour deep dive. We're going to cover your life, your career, your discography. There's so much to talk about between, you know, the, the uh, Sheepdogs have so much music and so many albums, and then bros, there's a couple albums and some EPs and some singles. And and then uh, the, the new album, I really want to sink my teeth into the album because it's uh, it's a great one. There's so much to talk about. And I, I like to start these interviews by sharing with the listeners how the guests and I know each other, just Showing the importance of networking, of building community, of of fostering relationships. So in our case, uh, back in February, around when you released, around when you released your debut album, I had your uh, bandmate Ricky Pocket of the Sheepdogs on the podcast, and while I was promoting that, um, we kind of ended up in the same orbit as you were. You know, seeing this or that from the interview, and we 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 talked a little bit, and you were kind enough to actually provide quotes for a couple episodes of the podcast. So I had uh Lowell Campbell who's the drummer for my favorite band Winter Sleep and he's been on tour drumming with Billy Talent for the last couple of years which is amazing. So you provided a quote for that. And then recently uh, there's a series on the podcast here called My 5 Favorite Albums. So I get guests that come on and they share their five favorite albums of all time and a band called the dream boats who are an amazing band from the GTA that have been in California for a few years. Uh, one of their five favorite albums of all time was the sheepdogs learn and burn and you were oh, kindy. No. E- yeah. Yeah. And you were <laughs> kind enough to provide, uh, kind of some behind the scenes info of the writing and recording of that album. So, uh, that is how we connected uh, earlier this year and i guess i want to start by just saying thank you for providing those quotes and that inside uh, insight to make the uh, the podcast better you know oh my pleasure man i'm
1: i'm filled with little sound bites if you uh, <laughs> if you want them you know <laughs>
0: i'll keep i'll keep reaching out so we're going to work our way through your discography here but let's go back all the way to the beginning where does this love of music come from is there an earliest musical memory when you think back
1: Well, I mean, it was in our household growing up. Like my old man was a musician, so he was a professional musician. That's how he made his living. And uh, so it was always around. Me and my brother both took piano lessons growing up, and I played trombone in the school band. And it was always just sort of like a thing that we did, just like kind of like a generic activity. And at a younger age, I wouldn't say it was anything that I loved per se, so much as just like one of any number of activities that I did. Like I played baseball and I, you know, was in the school play and I played trombone and piano and stuff. And then it wasn't until I got older that I thought that I realized that this thing that I kind of took for granted and I'd always kind of done that, I actually had some aptitude at it and like people appreciated that I was good at this thing. And I sort of started to take it a little more seriously. I was like, oh, hey, this thing that I just kind of do, I'm actually pretty good at. And then I think, yeah, it would have been after high school uh, when I first started forming bands and playing in bars. I was like, hey, this is a lot of fun. This is something I kind of want to pursue. So just so sort you, of like kind of grew organically, I guess. Yeah.
0: So you started with uh, piano and trombone and it was later on that you started with the guitar and, and more yeah. of the singing and songwriting?
1: Yes. I, yeah, piano and piano. And then I, I took piano lessons and kind of. Faded away for a few years and then came back to it in my teen years as like a, oh, this is a cool kind of form of expression kind of thing. You know, we always had a family piano kicking around. Trombone was something I just did in school as like an easy credit. But then again, I was like, oh, hey, you don't actually have to play boring school pieces. You know, you can play funk music or, uh, you know, I, I played in the school jazz band, which I always liked. And then, yeah, guitar, like my older brother was always just leaving his guitar around. Like, I would have to, like, move it off the couch if I wanted to sit down and watch TV. And then next thing you know, you'd pluck a few chords. and One day when you moved it, it, you strummed
0: a chord and, and yeah. that's what all that? she wrote. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah.
0: You wrote your first song like
1: by accident. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What?
0: Which musicians would you say were your biggest influences when you first started picking up those instruments? When you looked, and there were people at the peak of of their power, and you said, "Wow, if I actually dedicated myself to this, if I, you know, really practice, that is the pinnacle of what is possible as a musician."
1: Well. It's, it's funny because I kind of compartmentalize my musical growth in a few different ways. There's like the singer songwriter side of it, which is the like strumming guitar, writing songs, trying to impress girls <laughs> kind of side. But then there's also like, you know, I uh, was an instrumentalist playing trombone in the band. And, and from that side, I got into jazz and I got into like blues and R&B and that kind of thing. Uh, so I, I would say as far as playing guitar and like writing songs, it all kind of stems from trying to be like the Beatles just, you know, kind of like they were the first modern band, you know, they were the first group of guys who wrote and performed their own songs and were super into songcraft and singing their own songs and, you know, coming up with cool melodies and how they fit in with the chords. And, you know, if you're hacking your way through stuff on acoustic guitar, I, I think they're kind of like the, the Bible of that style of, you know, songwriting, you know, uh, especially McCartney. I always was a McCartney guy. So um, very much like that. And then, when I started my first ever band after high school, it was a funk band. So <laughs> the guys that we were trying to sound like were like James Brown and, and Parliament. And I played trombone, so I really wanted to be like Fred Wesley, who was James Brown's trombone player, who was like the sideman who wrote, you know, Pass the Peas" and Mo P's. And, uh, um, what's the other one I really like? Anyway his style of like really brash aggressive trombone playing that was just like electrifying to me and not like anything i'd ever heard like you know playing in school where they're just trying to get you to play smoothly and in a section and kind of fit in and then fred wesley comes in and he's playing this like amazing funky lead playing i was like yeah that's what i wanted to sound like of course it's funny because i was like a skinny white kid from suburban saskatchewan you know <laughs> pretty far removed from like the funky soul of the american south but that's uh that's was sort of like you know a big, a big influence on me. And then uh yeah, that and and the classic songwriting of the Beatles.
0: <laughs> I feel like the uh the the Apple documentary, I think it was called Get Back on the Beatles. Yeah. I feel like that was made for you, where it's like, I don't know, four hours or six hours or eight hours of just right in the studio showing that these are real people. Like, yes, they're these rock stars, but these are four musicians trying to write a great album did, did you watch that i feel like that's
1: not yeah, your name right i watched over. it with rapt attention it was amazing it was like the level of access was just unbelievable i think the thing that i actually took away the most from that was just how much the beatles were just like four bratty dudes hanging out you know like yeah like like john lennon just wasted time goofing around <laughs> and like how much time they spent dicking around on don't let me down stuff but it kind of like it made it It really spoke to me as a guy who's done a lot of that same kind of behavior in a studio and stuff like that. But like to think that these were the four guys, the apex of their powers, so much money behind them and they're still just behaving like bratty teenagers. I was like, ah, it makes me feel better. (laughs) Yeah, I guess what was eye opening for me
0: is just how young they were. You know, you think of like Paul McCartney now ish, but you think back then it's like they're already the biggest band in the world. And they're just these young guys, like they're way younger than I am now. And and that that's kind of shocking.
1: I know I, know. I think retroactively we kind of like. Put a lot of uh, read into their personalities in ways that maybe wasn't there at the time, just because, you know, everyone's elevated them to the level of giants and in, in the music industry. So, yeah, it is it is pretty amazing to go back and watch and just see, you know, 27 year old guys goofing around like, I don't know. <laughs> Is humanizing, I guess. That's kind of nice, you know?
0: Yeah. So you you mentioned that you started learning some instruments young, but it was a little bit later on that you started taking it seriously as a musician. Before (laughs) you started taking it seriously as a musician, if I asked you as a kid what you wanted to be when you grew up, what would you say?
1: I probably would have given you some kind of like flippant answer without actually thinking about (laughs) what it meant. Like I remember my stock answer for when like, you know, the guidance counselor at school would ask you what do you want to be? was an engineer and I for what? I, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> I think I just like said that as like a thing. Um, I don't know. I was an active kid. Like I played sports and I was in drama and stuff like that, but I definitely like enjoyed the kind of creative pursuits more. Like I liked creative writing and stuff too. So, I mean, if I actually, if you like had to, like, if you really hard pressed me, I'd probably say like I would have wanted to be like an actor or something like that. But even I think, Even at the time, I would have probably known that that was a bit far fetched. Like, uh, I never would have, in my wildest dreams, said like rock musician uh, because that would have been far too fanciful and unrealistic. And yet, you know, through the crazy twists and turns of life, I've managed to get something like that. (laughs) Is is there Uh, still a part of you that desires to be an actor? Uh, not really. I don't think so. Like I've I've seen kind of like I have I've had friends who work professionally as actors, and I've seen kind of like what it's like, and it seems very demanding, and also a skill set that I don't think really comes naturally to me. I think being you know uh, living in a small community like Saskatoon and like you know acting in like high school plays, you feel like you've really got a good command on the art form. <laughs> but then like you know living in Toronto the past ten years, I've I've met all these people professional actors, and there's so much more committed to their craft and quick-witted and like adaptable than i ever was and i was like no i think i'm better off being a musician (laughs) do
0: do you think with all the music videos that you've made over the years that that's kind of um it it kind of scratches the itch a little bit that you're you know in front of the cameras and there's some acting perhaps
1: well i mean stepping on stage is like acting like it's a performance every night you know you you're putting on a persona to the crowd. And, and some of it I think is based on who you are as a person, but I think, you know, anyone who performs will tell you that they're, they're kind of amplifying their themselves to be on stage, you know, like, like it's a, it's an act, it's a bit of a show, you know, like, uh, so, you know, I get to act every night. If you can think of it that way, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, it just so, falls in the same category as just performing as being on, as being, you know, uh, larger than life version of yourself for 90 minutes while you're on stage every night
0: yeah some people it's it's actually a character that they're playing on stage yeah. like when you when you get someone like the alice cooper it's like they oh. they step on stage and it's no longer the 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 regular person it's this alice cooper persona and oh, uh yeah. w- one one example that stood out to me is i i saw danko jones at uh, barrymore's here in ottawa so you know pretty intimate venue and on stage it's like total rock star right it's like the tongue out and and just this energy and this badass dude and then uh backstage he's walking around he's got glasses on and he's like super timid i was like oh my (laughs) god like he left he left this other character on stage completely it was almost shocking
1: yeah well i think is it in that get back documentary where paul mccartney's talking about beating little richard and he comes in backstage and he's very meek and he's got like a fur jacket around him he's like all huddled from the cold and then he like gets a hot towel in the sink and wraps around his face and it comes up and he's like good morning darlings and he's like totally in character and he's ready to go and he's got the like crazy attitude and everything like i don't know i kind of love that like i like the compartmentalizing you know the the stage persona and then you can just be whoever you want to be in your regular life like i don't know i kind of like that <laughs> yeah if uh if so I,
0: I'm in Ottawa, I grew up in Ottawa, uh, you grew up in Saskatoon, if we were friends at 16, and you invited me over to your place to play some music for me, what albums would you be spinning at 16?
1: Well, there'd definitely be a bunch of James Brown in there. Cause so that's, pr- that's when I was like, super into funk music. As a dorky white kid, I was just like obsessed. With it. <laughs> so I liked I liked all the classic 70s funk. So would have been James Brown would have been some Parliament. Probably would have been like some of the spinners in there. Um, I mean, I liked I liked the sort of Canadiana rock at that time too. So, you know, I was listening to Sloan and uh, I might've had, if I was trying to be really cool, I might've had like a Thrush Hermit CD in there or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Rating my older brother's CD collection was a big source of what I was listening to at the time. He had very eclectic tastes, which was great. So I mean I kind of got to do a little bit of everything, but um my dad also had a lot of like Stevie Wonder, Elton John, uh Motown kind of stuff kicking around too. I know Elton John's on Motown, but <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, it definitely d- diverse, eclectic kind of stuff. Uh lots of jazz too. Like I used to listen to my grandfather's like big band stuff, like you know, Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller and that kind of stuff. And as a trombone player, I like that kind of stuff. So um I mean, that's kind of where the the bros shtick comes from, is that we had this eclectic taste in music and we kind of liked, like everyone knows us as like rock and rollers, but we like all kinds of stuff. And that's kind of you know, where that kind of idea came from. But, but I think my main thing when I was 16 was I was just like all about the funk music. <laughs> you know, James Brown all the time, uh, you know, Parliament, Fred Wesley, those guys. That was like kind of my jam.
0: You mentioned Sloan. Uh, I saw Sloan at, at Edgefest in Toronto years ago where it was like Eve Six, uh, I Mother Earth, uh, Our Lady Peace. It was like this awesome, I don't know, quadruple bill. Uh then I saw them recently here in Ottawa and not too long ago, I got a call from a friend that said, Hey, tonight, uh, the singer from Sloan, Chris Murphy is doing a solo acoustic show. Do you ah. want to join us? We have an extra ticket. So I went out to the rainbow bistro, which is this little venue in Ottawa and he was performing and it was the best part is he was telling all these stories in between. He's a great storyteller. And, uh, my, my favorite part is when it's done, he goes, okay. Um, so, uh, you know, here's I, I'm done for the night. You know, uh, the encore, whatever. And there's no backstage, and there's like no off stage. So he just he's there. He's like, all right, have a good night. And he just turns around. So he turns around, and then people start cheering and cheering. And then he, he goes, all right, encore. Like he pretended he got off stage. That was yeah, the best part.
1: <laughs> he's such a goof, that guy, man. So yeah. Sloan was actually my first ever rock show. No way. I saw them at Louie's in Saskatoon, which is a campus bar when I was. 15, I think. Oh, it was great. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, man, they have so many good songs. And, and what's awesome is, like, all the members of the band can play every instrument. They can all sing. And yeah. because of that, you get so many different sounding songs within that band. So you have some of the more punk stuff, the more pop stuff, the more rock. And then you have beautiful songs like The Other Man that sounds completely different. So yeah. Yeah, I love the bit. idea
1: that they all wrote and they all sang too. Like I think that was a big influence, you know, on a band like, you know, Sheepdogs and stuff. Like the idea that every member can sing and everybody has their own voice It's pretty awesome. Yeah, they're, you know, as far as I was concerned, growing up, they were like Canadian rock royalty. They were like, you know, one of my all-time faves.
0: Yeah, they're saying they're saying that besides the Rolling Stones, Sloan is the longest-running band of all time that still has the original members like they got big in like, I don't know, 92 or something, yeah, and it's still yeah. the same four guys. And apparently outside of them, it's like the Rolling Stones that have had the same members. And after that, it's Sloan that still, I don't know, 30 whatever years later are still the same four guys. So that's their Wow.
1: Yeah. Wow, I didn't think about that.
0: Yeah. Anyways, yeah. <laughs> just, just drop in some random knowledge that nobody yeah. cares about uh, what so our listeners love to hear about crappy jobs, regular people jobs, that these successful musicians had before their big breaks. They want to know that you are like a real person that has struggled. Uh, can you share any of the jobs that you had before, let's say, the Sheepdogs took off?
1: Sure. Well, my first ever gig was, I was a grocery store clerk at Sobeys in Saskatoon, and that sucked. <laughs> and then I actually got a pretty good job after that with a little bit of nepotism. My mom was a librarian at the University of Saskatchewan. She got me a gig as a bookshelver, which which just meant that I would go and put books back on the stack. So it was like a five-story library, and I was responsible for the, uh, I think it was the like natural sciences section. So I was putting like books that were pretty boring to me back. But the best part was is that I got to just listen to music for three hours a day while I was shelving books. And there was a photography department too so like if i got all my books done early i could go and just like look at these weird books of photography and just like and just listen to tunes that was the best part <laughs> uh and then i also worked as a short order cook at a pub for a while in an after and then i worked at a cd store as well which is actually pretty sweet because you just you know be around music all the time and you know in my mind i was just like recreating scenes from high fidelity constantly but it wasn't that much fun it was <laughs>
0: <laughs> did uh, people ever come in and and ask you about music to try to get you to figure out what song or album or band they had heard with that yes
1: yes and and i was not a listener of the radio at that point in my life and that's so i was mostly hopeless because i knew a lot about like 70s music and uh you know like I, I knew about the music that i liked and i had a rude awakening that that was not necessarily what was popular or mainstream or what people wanted to buy at this cd store that i was at so people would come in and be like humming a song or like you know that song about like the new tattoo that's on the radio and i'd be like can't help you buddy i don't know. <laughs> The releases is over there, you know. But
0: I uh, I worked at CD warehouse in Ottawa as a teenager, and uh, a couple came in and they said, "Oh, we're looking for a blue rodeo song. It's it's a slow one." I was like, "Well, that goes from 400 blue rodeo songs to 398. Like that doesn't yeah. really <laughs> do that, so." Anyways, that's a random Uh-oh. memory that I have. Uh, how how early on did you know you had something special to offer as a musician, and that maybe you could do this as a career? You said it, it took other people kind of commenting on your talent first for you to know that you had something going on there.
1: Well, I think I always knew that I could, like, I could play. Like uh, when I was at the University of Saskatchewan, I played in the big band, which is kind of hilarious. I was like. I, I was studying English literature at the time, so I was not a music student, but I uh, I played a bit of trombone and I was like a pretty good soloist. So my, like the leader of the big band kind of like poached me and brought me to play. And like, I couldn't read the charts as well because I wasn't like studying music very avidly at the time, but he would always like throw me a solo and I could like play a pretty good solo. (laughs) So like, I kind of, kind of always knew that like I had a good sort of musical pedigree on the back burner. And then... I was playing in bands and stuff around then, like of of my own bands playing like original music and some of my band members started saying that they wanted to study music and move to Toronto and they kind of kept all moving away and the band shrunk from like a six piece funk band down to like a three piece rock band and I went from playing trombone to playing bass and singing lead and then eventually we kind of like we just sort of kept shrinking and people kept splintering off moving away but all my buddies were going to Toronto to study music and they were taking it way more seriously. So I think it was always like, I knew that I had something to offer, but it took kind of my pals moving away and taking it more seriously for me to realize like, Hey, look, if if I want to do this and take it seriously, I have to like commit and uh, you know, sort of make it my full-time passion kind of thing. And so I guess in 2009, that's when I moved to Toronto to study at Humber college and I was studying jazz trombone, which seems like hilariously archaic now because I don't really play jazz or anything like that. But that was the program that uh, had been recommended to me and that all my buddies were were going to. So I decided to follow suit. But it meant, you know, coming to the big city and, and just like a change of mindset that I was going to start taking music seriously as a profession. And, uh, you know, just applying discipline to it instead of just like, Hey, this is a fun thing to do to impress girls and like to get into bars and stuff like that. I was like, Oh no, I'm going to work at this. I'm going to start, you know, practicing and uh, you know, writing songs and working on music with like a discipline that normally I hadn't really applied to <laughs> maybe anything in my life up to that point. but uh, You, you got
0: know. sucked into the concrete jungle
1: and it hasn't spit you yeah. up then. Yeah, pretty much, man. I think, you know, not to get too scholastic with it, but when I came to, to Toronto and I, and I came to study at Humber, it was a real like culture shock for me. Like I was, I wouldn't say a country kid, but I was a city kid from a very small city in a very rural province. So like, you know, moving to Toronto was very different for me. And then also coming to a music school, I was a bit older. I would have been 20 already. And I had like a you know, just sort of general arts background. And everybody in my program was a few years younger than me and way better at their instrument than me. They were all these kids who had gone to like arts high schools who could just play circles around me, like classical trumpet and just like amazing, amazing musicians. But I found that maybe I had them beat on like life experience. Like I was older, but also like I had played in bands before. I had written songs. I could play a few different instruments. So maybe I couldn't I couldn't stand up to them and just like pure instrument virtuosity, but I had versatility i could do other things you know and i think that became useful later when i joined the sheepdogs because i became like the gadget man i became the guy who could do a bunch of things you know the jack of all trades so that was kind of a good
0: i uh (laughs) i know a lot of i have a lot of friends that went to that school and they're all like ridiculous world-class musicians so i know what you're talking about
1: there was some like yeah and still i like those guys i know who were like went on to study at berkeley or like you know got these international teaching positions and like there's yeah there's some real heavy hitters for sure but equally tragic are the crazy good musicians who i know who kind of hung it up because it's such a competitive industry to get into and i know these guys who are working as coders now or like you know back in saskatoon working for the city of saskatoon cutting grass who are like world-class musicians and stuff so (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's what's
0: funny is when you were saying your band kept shrinking that you started as a six piece and you went down to a three piece and i'm picturing at the end it's just you as a one man band yeah. with like <laughs> playing bass there's like a trombone on a stand you got like a hat that you can move sideways with a string and then
1: yeah, play kick with your ear. foot yeah
0: <laughs> what the, what are some of the names of the, the bands that you had before joining the sheepdogs our, our listeners love hearing these crazy names sometimes they're like the worst names ever sometimes they're like genius names that are better than the, the band they made it big with you know
1: well my first ever band was pretty bad we were called keepers of the groove we were a funk band but uh, that's good. it was like a reference to like we you know in the rain song uh robert plant says something about keepers of the groove but like he actually says keepers of the gloom but we like misheard him we're like oh it'll be a sick band name you know uh but yeah, I don't know. It's, it just sort of felt very cumbersome and kind of nerdy <laughs> for a band name. Yeah. Uh, and then when we, when basically like our horn section left, or like I, I, I was part of our section, but I switched the, tr- switched the bass and uh, our sax player moved on and we changed to sort of become just like a power trio and then we were called The Proof for a while. That's good. Not a, great, not a great band name. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, and then and then we were just called the keepers trio i think for a while none of these bands ever did anything i think we maybe just played a few bars in saskatoon and that was about it i think the keepers of the groove biggest gig ever was a new year's eve show where we opened for the sheepdogs uh you know in probably 2007 or something like that (laughs) uh but that was fun and then yeah i don't know I, i played in a In a ska band, as every trombonist does as a rite of passage, (laughs) very briefly, guys that I just knew from like another high school who needed another horn player. So uh, I sort of moonlit in that band for a while. Uh, I think they were called Schnarp or something like that, just like a nonsense name. That's all I got. I don't
0: know. <laughs> I, I love I love how the guy that released a card game said that the name was too nerdy. You know, the band <laughs> name was too nerdy. I'm very aware. There, of there are of levels that. to acceptable dirtiness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's oh. funny. Um, I guess my last question about you growing up before we dive into the, uh, the sheepdogs. M- musicians are often told that... You know, having a career in the music industry, man, that is a pipe dream. One in a million. No one makes it. You you should forget that. You should get the education, get a good job and just do it as a hobby. Um, did you have to deal with that kind of um, resistance from family or friends? I feel like with your dad as a musician, with your brother as a musician, that maybe you didn't have as much resistance as other people.
1: It's funny because my dad did give me that exact talk as a professional musician, because I think he'd experienced all the difficulties of being a pro musician. Like, uh, you know, you're not going to have a lot of money. You're going to, there's going to be a ton of competition for any gig or any kind of professional opportunity that you're going to have. And he knew from firsthand experience. So he, he, he did sit us down and recommend like, you know, maybe consider getting a job in the trades, you know, especially in Saskatchewan, there's a lot more opportunity for that kind of work out there. And. We did listen to him. And then we, of course, both went into music. <laughs> and once we did, he was very supportive of us. Like he's ne- he never was like upset that we chose a career in the arts. I mean, he did the same thing. So he understood. But uh, we definitely both got that talk because, I mean, to this day, yeah, it still is a struggle. Like you know, As I said before, I still think of all these super talented musicians that I knew at school and, and just throughout life who have had to get side gigs or switch careers just because it's, you know, like... I think what it did more than anything else was just instill a sense of how lucky I am to work in music and be able to make a living in music is a blessing. And I don't take it for granted because it's tough. It's tough out here, you know, and there's a lot of talented people who can't. So, yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's normally tough enough as it is. And then you look at the pandemic where basically, uh, (laughs) You know, the the entertainment industry and the live event industry got hit harder than almost any other industry and you know, the prime minister essentially says to all musicians, you know, your, your services are no longer required. You should probably think about going back to school and studying something else. And you're like, what? And, uh, man, the amount of musicians I know that became real estate agents, you know, you had the music industry that essentially died and you had the real estate industry that went to all time highs in like bidding wars and price sales and, you know, Uh, all, all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I so many musicians that became real estate agents, and and once the music industry kind of opened up again, a lot of people didn't come back. So it, for touring musicians, sometimes it was hard to find the the guys on the road because they had, I, I again learned some new a new
1: trade and and went to work somewhere else. Absolutely, man. We're still recovering. We're still feeling like there's. We've been lucky enough to be back on the road for about a year now, but there's still voids in the profession like it's very hard to find like a good guitar tech and stuff like that just because a lot of these guys got out of the game because there's no work for three years you know so yeah it's tough man but uh i I don't know people have talked endlessly about how music's undervalued in society and you know especially like financially it's not really getting rewarded the same way but it's such an essential part of life that people will always make it like you know it's 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 a calling to a lot of people it's just it's crappy that it, we're not you know maybe getting supported as much as we should from a financial or uh you know whatever means but there has to be music in life it's just part of it you know like well it'll always be there
0: so so as we as we dive into the Sheepdogs, I want to set the tone. Uh, I I shaved the nicest rock and roll mustache that I could muster up uh, to, to try to be an honorary member of the Sheepdogs family today. And then I'm sporting my greenest shirt in honor of your the artwork of your new solo album. So Seamus, do I get a one day uh, honorary guest pass into the Sheepdogs family
1: today. Sure, man. Come on board. We
0: love it. Atta the is great, by the way. I love the stash. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you yeah, was... the bottom
1: piece there too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was getting lost. I forget, like, I can't see myself. So I forget that I did this a few days ago. And, you know, I show up at hockey and everyone's making comments. I didn't even yeah. remember I had <laughs> it. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so as we dive into the Sheepdogs, so I'm just going to set the stage. Uh, so the band forms in 2004. Uh, the band releases the albums trying to grow 2007 the sheepdogs big stand 2008 learn and burn 2010 and then the sheepdogs 2012. Uh, so you you weren't officially in the band yet so you played trombone on big stand and learn and burn you were there as a guest And then in 2012, you became a touring member. And in 2014, you became a full-time member. Uh, When we talked uh, off camera, you mentioned that it's kind of, the lines are a little bit blurred between what is a touring musician, what's an official musician. So can you talk about, uh, I guess, maybe you uh, performing on those two albums and then you, I guess, getting into the band as a touring member and then as a full-time member?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, the biggest piece of the backstory is just that the 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 sheepdogs was like my brother Ewan and his pals, Ryan, his high school buddies, Ryan and Sam. It was their band. They started as a trio and then they added Leet uh, their fourth piece a couple of years into the band's existence. They were my older brother and his buddies, like bar band, essentially. So they were kind of like, you know, my cool gateway into the older world of like bars and music and girls and all that kind of stuff so like i was a sheepdogs fan well before i'd ever considered going to see the band just because i was like the younger brother you know so uh uh i remember seeing them play at the first ever gig at a battle of the bands at louise same place i saw sloan uh you know when i was 16 or 15 or whatever and uh yeah i just sort of you know followed them as a more of just sort of like a younger brother supporting my older brother like hey, this is my my brother's new passion and and he's doing this and it's kind of cool and but then also going to hang out at rock shows is fun you know and it just sort of became part of like coming of age and 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 especially becoming a bar age i realized that like i didn't really like going to the clubs as much i like going to places that were playing music like like live music and and that kind of the arts scene was more appealing to me and the fact that I had this connection with my older brother who was already playing at all these venues. It was kind of like a great gateway into that whole world for me. So, so to me, like they were just sort of the pinnacle of cool. It was like, these are my, these are my guys, you know? And then right when they started touring and actually playing, you know, gigs outside of Saskatoon and they started coming back with like cool, outfits that they bought on the road and like you know started growing like wicked facial hair and stuff and like these they had have these new original songs they'd written that i hadn't heard yet and stuff because they were progressing as a band meanwhile i was like you know 17 18 working as a short order cook or at a cd store just sort of like coming up in their wake a little bit i was just like man these guys are so cool it's really coming on and then uh, that was also part of like when I was starting my own bands and uh, and playing music on my own and starting to think about moving to Toronto to take music a little more seriously. That was all kind of in the shadow of my brother and his band and them working on their music. And when I was at Humber in my third year, uh, I was kind of a little bit at odds of what I was doing with my life because I was like, why am I studying jazz trombone? I don't think I'm going to be able to do this as a career. This is going to be kind of difficult what should I really be doing? That was the year that the sheepdogs entered and won that Rolling Stone competition. And so I was just following that just as a fan. But at the same time, it was kind of this uh galvanizing thing for me because I was watching my brother achieve this amazing feat of like, you know, he was gal kind of the country was getting behind the sheepdogs, and everyone was really excited that they're in this Rolling Stone competition and they're competing with American bands and doing so well, and they made it to the top two, and everyone's voting for them and all that kind of stuff. But you, you, also were also, you were also
0: you were also a part of that album, right? The learn and burn is is what I was that? Trombone. Yeah. Yeah. I've so played you trombone. were I mean, there's a part of you that was a part of that that journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I was just so thrilled for them. And and in a way for me, because I was like kind of struggling at school at the time, not struggling, but just sort of like, what am I doing here? And like seeing them succeed was motivating me to do better. At, at school in my own regard, I was like, hey, if they can do well, I can do well. You know, I'm like, this is great. This It was just sort of like this great boosting experience. And then the year of my final recital in my third year, I wrote and recorded a, a rock opera, not dissimilar to The Shepherd and the Wolf, actually. <laughs> it was like a, a suite, a concept suite of 30 minutes of music that I performed at my school. And I got like a pretty good mark on it. And so afterwards, me and the band were celebrating. That night, Ewan calls me and he says, hey, uh, you know, we've won this competition. We want to add a keyboard player to the band. You want to come on the road with us? I was just like, yes, this is the greatest day of my life. I'll do it, of course. So I I took the next year off school and I went on the road with the guys. I was 2012. And uh, it was right at the peak of their stardom because they had just won this competition and they were just the hot band in everywhere. So I think the story I always jokingly tell is uh, my first ever gig, we played a club show at the Elma Combo in Toronto. And uh, I, I was just playing off keyboard parts to make them sound more like the, the live sh- or the make the live show sound more like the record. And I didn't have any shoes at the time that were like rock and roll shoes. So I just played barefoot like a homeless guy or something. It's pretty funny. And then my second ever show we played, the I think it was the Indie Awards. It was some kind of award show in Toronto. But we were backing up Paul Rogers from Free. Uh, he played with us and we did like some Free songs. I was like, this is amazing. Uh, and then my third show was Coachella in California. So <laughs> we kind of like just jumped right into the deep end of playing these like amazing high profile shows. I was like, what is my life now? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that escalated quickly. Yes. <laughs> yes That's
0: funny. What I guess my question is, I, man, I remember that Rolling Stone cover contest. It uh, was, it was such a big deal. It was, you know, sometimes these these competitions, they come and go and and it, it, it's not that big of a thing. But this was like everywhere. Like you kept hearing about this and the Sheepdogs became the first independent band ever to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. And that's like the iconic music magazine. Um, yeah. what, what was what was it like? I guess taking that in, what was it like seeing? You know, your your brother and his band go through that and you having been a part of the album that kind of launched that opportunity as well.
1: I was so proud. I was just I was just like a excited family member. I was like, you know, the biggest cheerleader that the band had. I like I said, I was my third year at school and basically the, the most fun weekend I would ever have while I was at school was like the weekend that the sheepdogs would come through town and play Toronto and like me and all my college buddies would go to the show and get super drunk and just party real hard so like we were just huge fans of the band also at the time I was like full-on jazz nerd like I was studying like John Coltrane and giant steps and like theory matrixes and crap like that so to like go and rock out to just some like meat and potatoes classic rock was like the greatest bomb for me to like just relax into like fun easy accessible music like like sheepdogs rock and roll was just like everything that I loved at the time so I I was just thrilled to see all that stuff go down and like I said it was also motivating for me to be like look hey I I can hack my way through jazz school if my brother can you know (laughs) get his face on the biggest music magazine ever you know (laughs) it was just sort of like It just made me feel really proud you know and really excited and and then opened a lot of doors just for us uh you know musically the fact that like the opportunity to play some of these huge festivals and to travel the world stuff like that so when he called and said like hey do you want to come on the road with us i was just like absolutely chomping at the bit you know and and if anything i was super ready musically too because i just spent a bunch of years studying some of the hardest music ever so i was super excited to play just some fun easy growing rock and roll and just get out there you know it was such a great opportunity so i was thrilled
0: yeah it led to some huge opportunities not just the the festivals and the the live shows but it 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 led to the signing with a major label i believe atlantic if i remember correctly and uh it led to i don't know being like a massive song at radio uh what was your reaction to to hearing i don't know like i was in ottawa and you would hear i don't know all the time. And it stood out because it was playing on like current rock stations and it didn't sound like a current song. It sounded like kind of this vintage classic rock. So it really stood out when you, when you heard it. So it was a big deal here in Ottawa. I can't imagine like in, in Saskatoon or in, in Toronto, what, uh, what it was like hearing that all the time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think for me, like I, I, I can't speak to the creation of, I don't know. I mean, I've played it endlessly on stage in the live band, but that's very much, you know, my brother and those other guys' is baby because they worked on it and, and like the genesis of it at least. But I mean, I, I was such a fan of the band that to me, it just felt vindicating to be like, yes, they're getting their due. You know, like back in Saskatoon, you know, we, we listened to those guys all the time, me and my buddies, and we knew that they were a good band, you know? So like to see them get you know, credit like that on like an international stage. I mean, definitely on a national stage and to this date, you know, Canada still is our biggest market. So it was just, it was just awesome. It was sort of like, you know, they worked really hard. They created a good product and now they're being appreciated for it. It was just like, yes, you know, about time, you know, we were just so thrilled. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it, it was just wonderful. That time of our lives was just sort of like a nonstop gravy train of good vibes, you know? So It was it was like the peak of of of, you know, my brother and and the guy's success. And I was lucky enough to kind of like slide in and kind of ride the wave with them. And I'm very grateful to this day that I got that opportunity. Yeah, that
0: led to a couple platinum albums to platinum singles, gold singles, top ten singles, uh, just a ton of unbelievable success. And uh, we're going to keep the good times going because uh, back then in 2012, you were the newest member of the Sheepdogs. However, you are no longer the newest member of the Sheepdogs. That would be Ricky Paquette. And he was kind enough to send in some kind words. And I literally got these three minutes before we started this interview to the point where I had already printed the questions. So we'll see if I can read my own handwriting here. So this is what Ricky Paquette, uh, guitarist for the Sheepdogs, this is what he has to say. He says, Seamus, a great musician with an awesome sense of humor, a wizard, with a gentle soul who likes to rock hard. I'm lucky, and I feel proud to now get to call him a friend. Motherfucking Seamus. The real deal. So that's from oh, Rick. Oh,
1: what a sweetie. Love you, Rick. <laughs> Thanks, buddy.
0: Yeah, he said he was. Uh, he's in BC, so it was very hmm. early for him uh, at the, the time that we were starting here. So we,
1: we just flew home from England last weekend together. We spent a lot of time sitting on planes wisecracking together. So, yeah, that's good. Thanks for the kind words, Rick. <laughs>
0: So you, you talked about kind of the vindication of the band after all those years of working hard, finally, the success was coming, embraced at radio, embraced by the fans, uh, after that album, learn and burn, there were. Nominated for three Grammys and one all on uh, Grammys, three uh, Junos and one all, all three Junos. And then a little bit later on, so in 2014, so you are officially a member of the band. Uh, you guys won for Video of the Year for "Feeling Good." Wh- what What does the that Juno win mean to you? That you know that's Canada's Grammys. That's your country acknowledging, like you mentioned, your hard work and your talent and your dedication. I
1: mean, it's certainly an honor. Um, I, I believe that win was for the music video. Uh, so you know, not, but
0: it's your. I mean, it's your song that is provided for yes. that music video. You know, I mean, absolutely.
1: I mean, like anytime you're in the conversation, it's fantastic, and it's it's super nice to be, just you know, even considered as as being at the top of your game and, and being worth that level of consideration. Uh, that music video was sweet. <laughs> it's it's the like GI Joe dude's like wasted each other for 3 minutes to our song. Um but yeah, I mean I, I got to give credit to the filmmakers and the guys who actually like got their hands dirty making that cuz they're the ones who, who earned in that one, but uh like I say it's an honor and it's great it's great to be included in the conversation.
0: Yeah, there's been lots of other uh, Juno nominations and wins for like group of the year and album of the year and or rock album of the year and then those as well. Um yeah, I I uh I want to dive into your first Album with the band as a full-time member and contributor. So in 2015, Future Nostalgia, there's four singles, Downtown, I'm Gonna Be Myself, Bad Lieutenant, and Back Down. Uh, What thoughts, memories, emotions come to you when you think back to that album that for you as a full-time musician now, kick-started this adventure you've been on since then with the band?
1: So I was very excited to make that record. It was my first... Uh, time going into the studio with Sheepdogs as a full-time contributing member, and not just playing trombone. Uh, so that was very exciting to me. I had I just remember being brimming with ideas. I had so many things that I wanted to contribute. Probably in an overexcited little brother kind of way, because um, <laughs> I remember a lot, a lot of the time you and we just sort of be like, oh, "We'll get there. Calm down. Like you know, we we have a method here. You know." <laughs> so I was like, "What about this? We do this. We do. Oh my god, we can try that too." Like it's very excitable. Uh, We went up to Sony Lake and we set up a studio in a barn and we worked for a month. Uh, So it was great. We were kind of secluded. We were very, very committed to just making the best album that we could. Uh, We were working with Matt Ross Spang out of Memphis, who's a great engineer who traveled with us and helped us make that record. And you guys produced it yourself, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ewan was very hands-on with with dictating the kind of sounds that he wants to get. And it's great uh, because he's got a really strong vision of what he wants the band to sound like. And especially for that record, too. Um, supposed to pull it back there, nostalgia. Uh, it, it was great. I mean, we would get up, cook breakfast, jump in the lake each morning, and then just spend all day chipping away, you know, working on these songs. It's almost there's no better life if you ask me to just sort of be, you know, secluded with your buds working on music. It's kind of like living oh, the dream. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> spend my days. So that was amazing for me, you know. Um, I'm trying to remember, like I, we were working with Rusty Matthews at the time was the guitarist who worked with us on that record, who uh, was a great contributor, played a lot of great slide on that uh, album, which was good. Uh, I remember playing some pretty good weird keyboard solos. We do, a, which is actually a it's a method that you and I have developed a lot over the years. He'll get a weird keyboard and put it on a weird sound, and then just tell me to play it because I'm I'm good at. I've got kind of better keyboard technique than he does, but he's got a very good ear towards like sounds and tones. And it's the thing we've utilized a lot where I'll just be like playing a MIDI keyboard sometimes and he'll just like adjust the tones for me. <laughs> so like I can play, you know, the notes and the melodies, but he just gets the weird sounds out of me. So we did a lot of that uh, with like weird synthesizers and warlitzers and keyboards and stuff like that. And I think Daryl and Dwight on that album has a cool like weird outro that we came up with with keyboards and stuff like that. But I mean, I was like a kid in a candy store. I was just so thrilled to be working on music and finally getting a chance to get on get on wax with the Sheepdogs and beyond just playing trombone. So it was great. I loved it. Is is that the album? So I went and listened to the entire
0: Sheepdogs discography, the Bros discography, your new album. Is is that the album that has quite a few? uh, The song titles are are names. There's quite a few that have names. So you said Daryl and Dwight. Daryl and Dwight. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Just lots of inspiration from all of them. from people?
1: Yeah, I think I don't know. Maybe Ewan was just on a, a songwriting bent where he just loved like referencing specific people. <laughs> but uh, it was good. It was a, definitely a high watermark of creativity for us. Like I said, we were coming off that that incredible crest of the Rolling Stone competition, and um, you know, all, all the travel experiences and doors have been open to us because of that. So I think you know, Ewan was just sort of really feeling like referencing all these various people and stuff like that in his, in his songwriting. And I don't know, we were we were cooking. It was great.
0: Yeah, you guys must have been uh, feeling quite creative because I I believe that album and, and a few albums had like 17 songs. I mean, you can have a full length album that's like 10 songs and that's acceptable. So yeah. you guys we still like continuously that. pushing the limits. You must have just had a wealth of of
1: music. Well, and Learn and Burn had a medley on it, too. And we love Abbey Road, like the Abbey Road medley is like the best, you know, 15 minutes of pop music, basically, if you ask me. So I think we we and oh, another record that we love that has that same kind of structure is um, Chicago Transit Authority, the first album by Chicago. Just This idea of these flowing medleys of music that are like crafted like pop songs, but there's four of them in a row with interludes and they're just like these wonderful long form pieces of music. I think we got pretty infatuated by that so next thing we know every album that we made had to have a medal <laughs> you know? my my
0: favorite song from that album is bad lieutenant that has such a great groove to it uh, is there can you give us any insight into the writing uh and the recording of that song anything you can give the fans of that song that they don't
1: know about most of the sheepdog songs are written by you and so he's got kind of the inside of the writing process of that i think it was named after a the film Bad Lieutenant <laughs> starring uh, uh, Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant Port of Call starring Nick Cage. So maybe you can watch those to try. And- I think they're both pretty like pretty raw movies.
0: Do you <laughs> but, do you remember the recording of that song?
1: Uh, yeah, it was one of the first ones that we worked on, and we were really going for a slow strutting kind of vibe. You know, real kind of like mean mugging type of tune. Are you
0: picturing uh, Nicolas Cage mean
1: mugging and strutting while you? Yeah, do? exactly. In, in our mind's eye, we just picture Nick Cage, and that's where the song comes from. Uh, no, I think I mean it's 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 a pretty standard uh, like slow burning blues rock kind of tune. Um, you know, big bendy riff from Ewan, and and sort of ethereal um, reverb laden keyboards, and then you know bass and drums are just going all out in that slow groove so it's just yeah it's a mean you know tough guy kind of song but uh we do that kind of thing well, especially you and he's got that big growly voice he's good at kind of cultivating that kind of don't fuck with me energy when he's singing you know so got that that fuck you energy yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> That's funny. In uh, in 2018, you guys released the album Changing Colors. So three more singles. I've Got a Hole, Where My Heart Should Be, Nobody, and Saturday Night. Were you feeling massive pressure um, to f- following up your debut album with this one? So it's not the band's, you know, sophomore album, but for you, it is as a full-time contributor.
1: Um, I mean, not so much. I, I Especially in those days, I was very much just looking at every... T- moment in the studio as an opportunity like i said i was so eager to prove that i could you know hang with the the big dogs so to speak uh and and contribute in any way and i was i just had so many musical ideas in those early days that i was just like just just brimming with you know, ideas and, and concepts and things that I wanted to try in the studio. So if anything, I was probably just pissing off my bandmates to being like, well, what if we do this? What if we do this? You know, so <laughs> uh, by changing colors, I probably mellowed out a little bit. Um, that record has the guitar work of Jimmy Boskill on it, uh, who is just an amazing talent, uh, a great pal and a great guy to work with because he also has a million instruments that he can play and a million uh, new stylistic things that you can bring to the table. So I think on that record the most notable thing is that we were dipping into a little more country flavor uh which is definitely the influence of Jim because he's big time country guy okay. and loves the kind of bluegrass country picking style so um yeah definitely more piano on that than uh than I would have played on other albums like I I typically gravitate towards electric piano which I think is just my my love of 70s funk coming out again. I love, you know, organ and and electric piano in that kind of way. But I think in that record, we were going for more of an organic country, you know, Bob Dylan, Nashville Skyline kind of thing. (laughs) So I remember playing a lot more piano, country licks, that kind of thing. Um, But again, yeah, it's another long, sprawling record with probably a few too many musical ideas in there. Like, I think, was that record the one that's... Uh, three sides <laughs> like it's a full record and then another side like it's basically another double record so <laughs> yeah i kept i kept
0: looking and it was like 17 songs next album 17 <laughs> songs I was like wow these guys have a lot uh, a lot to offer musically uh, uh probably a year or year and a half ago i had blue rodeo on the podcast and when they came to ottawa i i went out to uh, to see them and man jimmy boskill is ridiculous uh yeah, as a
1: talent Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. When, that, he, when that guy rips on the guitar, it's like not just, you know, cause there's lots of great guitarists, but almost everything he played, it's not just that what he's playing is great and it's challenging. It's, it's just so tasty. Like he has such a great, um, I, I don't know, ear or feel or something that ev- everything he played was, was, it just felt good, and and it just seemed right. I don't know if that makes sense as a review, but
1: Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, of all the guys that I've worked with and like been in the studio with, he's sort of the guy who can kind of like tap into the pure musical essence in a way that few can. And just like sitting and watching him play takes in the studio was just wonderful because he'd come up with these amazing ideas, and each take would be very fresh. And, uh, and not only does he rip on guitar, he's also an incredible. Uh, steel player he plays fiddle he plays uh mandolin it's basically if it's got strings on it you can rip it like he's just he's, he's he's one of the most talented guitar players in Canada and uh it was a thrill collaborating with him and uh that's really kind of I think what took changing colors to the next step was, was his presence on that record because it's really something special for sure
0: Yeah. The, the rock and roll God smile upon him when he plays guitar for sure. (laughs) Um, so that, that album I believe was recorded over a longer period than usual for, for other albums. That was like six months or more. What do you think, um, led to it either taking that long or for you guys allowing that much time to flesh out the album?
1: Yeah. So we, we did that one at Taurus in Toronto and, I think it was just, we hadn't really done a record over a long period, like like you said, over a long period of time like that. Like, we've done a lot of we're going to a place, we're working with X person, and we're just going to stay until the record's done. You know, whether it be two weeks or, like, I think the self-titled record was recorded in, like, two weeks in Nashville with Pat Carney. And then we did the uh, Future Nostalgia at Stony Lake, basically all in a month with Matt Ross Fang. And then I think just the idea of having a little more time to kind of let ideas percolate and develop was very appealing, especially to Ewan. So we were like, but at this point too, most of us lived in Toronto, like, like Ewan and I moved out here full-time to live in 2014, but I'd already kind of been living here since 2009. Ryan was out here by then. And, uh, you know, Jim lived just outside of, like, I think he lived at the time in Port Hope, just outside of Toronto. So it was easy for us to kind of congregate in Toronto for like big chunks of time and then just sort of work on this album at our leisure. And I think it just, it meant that we had a kind of more easygoing process and that, and that the songs kind of developed more organically that way. Cause you're not, I don't know, you're not like, you get more time to fine tune stuff that way, you know? And you get more time to think about stuff and to clear your head and think about some other things for a while and then come back and work on music is good too because you can kind of like, I don't know. It's, the, the ideas turn out differently when you have work on them very intensely in short periods of time. Like sometimes it's good. And then, but then sometimes you can't kind of have them develop in a nice way <laughs> as if you, you know, when you have the luxury of more time, I don't know if I'm explaining that well, but <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you just turn you, out
0: different. yeah, you mentioned before that, you know, you couldn't take full credit for the video of the year Juno award, uh, you know, it's video of the year. Uh, two more Juno nominations for this album. So Group of the Year and Rock Album of the Year. You can take credit for those nominations. I mean, those yeah. are. Yeah. There you yeah, go. I mean,
1: it, it's a great record. It's one that I definitely stand by. Uh, a lot of great songs on there and great playing great solos sort of just like top down. It's just, you know, it's great to be recognized when you feel like you've made a good piece of, of art like that, too. So and, and also just the fact that at that point in our career, I think we've been playing hundred plus shows a year internationally and nationally traveling around. I think it was just sort of a nice recognition by the sort of Canadian music industry that like, Hey, look, these guys are out there playing shows, you know, Putting on events. If you're a fan of rock music, you know go see the Sheepdogs. We'll give them a the tip of the cap as you know group of the year kind of thing. We didn't win, but nice to meet them. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you
0: talked about how much you guys were playing. So in support of that album, you guys played over 200 shows. You are going out Canada, the U.S., Europe. Uh, what was your life like when you're on the road that much? 200 plus dates. I, uh, you know, some. Some people that might be their favorite part is the touring and the live show. Some people might see it as that's the necessary evil that maybe they prefer the writing and the recording. And, you know, we have to get out because that's how you promote the band and you sell more rec- records and you generate revenue and ticket sales and merch sales. What, what, what was your life like with 200 plus shows a year? And uh, what are your thoughts on playing
1: that much? Well, definitely you live out of a suitcase. And you, your home life is compromised. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's tough. It is tough, but also, you know, playing rock and roll every night is is such a thrill and such a treat, you know, and especially to play your songs with your buddies and my literal brothers, you know, like, uh, it kind of doesn't get any better than that. You know, we always joke that like you're on the road too long and you start to go crazy and then you go home and you're home for a couple of weeks and you start to get bored and you're like, ah, what am I I done? You get back out on the road, you know? (laughs) So it's just like a, it's a fine line kind of finding the balance between the two, but, uh, I mean, touring that long definitely wears you down just because you're always on the go. And, uh, you know, no matter how comfortable you are with live performance and, and all that, there, there is a certain amount of anxiety just on the daily level, knowing that you need to get in front of people and perform. So like, you know, it just, when you have that day after day after day, it kind of wears you down a little bit. Um, but at, it's also just like it's kind of my life at this point. Like that's I've just that's been my professional life since I was, you know, 20, 21. I've been a, a professional musician and the idea of traveling and playing is is that's it's my bread and butter, you know. So I, I love it, parts of it I hate, but I there's no I don't think there's such thing as a perfect job, you know. Like everyone hates some aspects of their job and getting up at three o'clock in the morning to get to the airport to fly across the country sucks sometimes, but you got to do what you got to do. I mean, travel is a beautiful thing as well. You know, I think I'm blessed to be able to go to all corners of the globe and see crazy things and eat, experience crazy stuff too, you know? So you take the good with the bad, you know, but I think Getting to play music professionally, again, like I said before, is the greatest. So I'll never complain. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's uh, it's better than digging ditches or doing construction in the winter in, in, in exactly. Canada. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, is so say say it was 200 shows uh, in support of that album. Is that pretty standard for how much you guys play per year? Or was that like the most that was like I think not,
1: that might have been particularly a big year? I mean, we had years. I remember reading. You remember that band Jet? The Are you going to be my girl? yeah. Um, I remember reading that they played 300 shows in a year and being like, wow. And then they broke up the next year. So <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, they're, they're related. I, I actually yeah. just saw, uh, there was an interview with the singer for, um, Goldfinger and apparently they're in the Guinness book of world records for most shows played in a year. They played, I think it was 600 600 and something like 678 shows in one year. And I I think maybe they were going for the record. So they like (laughs) double booked every day of the year, but that's, that's, that's like the standard of how insane you can get.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think there's like an Eric Clapton quote too about like, touring sucks and automatically ultimately wears you down and the only thing you can do to make it more tolerable is to throw money at it (laughs) but it's just sort of like a never-ending beast that's kind of coming for you and like eventually it'll just wear you down you know but uh but like you said you got to get out there you got to promote um your, your record and there's no better way to do it especially with like how effed up the music industry is as far as like you don't make any money streaming you know you don't really make any money selling uh you know records elsewhere you you got to hit the pavement you got to get out there and play and get in front of people but you know the reward is that when you play a good show and you get that connection with the audience and you you feel you know the buzz that you can only get from a live rock show it's like that's that's sort of reward enough you know so um yeah it's a lot playing 200 shows a year is very taxing but it's also it's there's plenty of silver linings and there's lots of great things about it too so you know I think it's just about finding that balance so you can play as much as you can without going crazy, you know. <laughs> so in, in 2021,
0: you guys released the EP No Simple Thing. So two more singles. Uh Keep on Loving You and Rock and Roll Ain't No Simple Thing. Uh so Keep On Loving You is like one of my all time favorite dog song. That's a uh, songs that's a great song. Uh what were the challenges of writing, recording, and releasing music during the pandemic? Twenty twenty one is like right in the middle of the chaos.
1: Yeah yeah so you know obviously we established ourselves as a hard touring band and then covid comes along and we're stuck at home for a long time so we're a bit at odds you know at first it was like you know oh great extended summer vacation you know great you know, i can just i can stay at home and get caught up on all the video games i've played in a few years but then you know quickly you're like am i ever gonna be able to get my work back you know am i gonna be able to like ever go back out on the road so that for us was just like basically an exercise in being like look let's try and make some music even in this compromised situation so we all got together and we bubbled up in montreal at a studio called Mixart, and we recorded those five songs as just sort of a way to like get some momentum in the depths of covid where like every band was kind of struggling to keep their heads above water um and that's a notable record for me because it's the first time i got one of my own compositions recorded by the sheepdogs a song called are you a good man so i was very thrilled to get that in there um and yeah and keep on loving you is another great like a real kind of almost departure in the sheepdog sound because we were really going for like a kind of bubblegum pop kind of sound with our kind of like cheesy organs and, and fun really kind of like upbeat fun loving kind of sound um but yeah that's a great ep and uh again, re- released in kind of a weird time where like maybe it didn't quite get the same level of promotion as a regular release with like accompanying touring and everything like that. But also, you know, the captive audience of COVID, I think meant that probably a lot of people checked it out just because there was nothing else going on. So they were like, hey, some new music, you know. So I'm very proud of that one as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think the, the two singles ended up being top five singles. So maybe, maybe,
1: uh, if, you, well, maybe.
0: Yeah, so even if maybe the, the whole EP you don't think got the uh the response that it deserved or the attention it deserved at least the two singles were were big singles on the radio and it's you know during a kind of a dark time like that it's it's nice to still have an outlet and be creative and and see that positivity of you know people embracing those songs at radio
1: absolutely yeah yeah the
0: uh so the one thing that stands out in listening to the entire sheepdog's discography is the harmonies. You guys are known for just having great harmonies. Everyone can sing, everyone can do harmonies. Uh, my my question to you is has hearing and singing harmonies always come easy to you? Or is that something you had to work on? A lot of times it's just you sing and you're great at being in, you know, in, in tune with yourself, but then having to do harmonies afterwards. That's to me, that's a different skill that you have to de- develop maybe some people have perfect pitch or something and get it right away
1: yeah my brother's really good at that um i'm not as good of a singer so it takes me a bit of work to get my harmonies uh up i think you know i have i have that sort of jack of all trades skill where i have like a pretty good musical foundation and can do a bunch of different things so I'm, I'm good at figuring out harmonies i might have to practice them a little bit more to uh to get them My brother is great, though. He's really good at the sort of effortlessly just hearing and and replicating. He's got the ear of a mimic. Like He's really good at doing voices and impressions, really good at at just sort of recalling things like that. So he's kind of got the natural singer and natural harmonizing vibe. Uh, The rest of us might have to work at it. Sam also is quite good at just pulling harmonies out of the air, too. Um, But it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about, like you know, the Beatles or bands like uh, the Eagles and stuff like that. guys were bands where everybody sings and that idea of everybody bringing their voice to like a joint experience is sort of like it just sort of makes the whole thing a little more euphoric you know like everyone's everyone's playing but everyone's also singing it's just like there's no no one's scowling or mean mugging that way there's no one kind of off in their own little world you know bands like Sloan did the same thing it just sort of makes for much more like invested experience and everyone's not only lending their instrument but also their voice to the, the whole thing it just makes it more inclusive or something or I don't know just better <laughs>
0: when when I see a live performance, to me, what what tells me that this is like a professional group and that their next level is when I hear harmonies. You know when someone does an hour set and it's just the one person on the mic and there's not a single harmony in the hour to me that's like amateur like we got to get someone else in there to to have harmonies so as soon as i hear harmonies or you know two-part three-part harmonies to me that is like one of the lines that people cross to to be next level professional musicians
1: well the the bands that we like back in the day that was how that's how they did man like the chicago is the same way you know like they just I think maybe harmony was just sort of more present in that or the earlier days of of pop music, the pop music that we like, you know. And maybe nowadays there's less bands that do that kind of thing, but you know we we like it and we try and try and capture that kind of energy. And uh, like I said, for me, I have to work a little more it <laughs> than maybe some of the other guys do, but uh, it's great, and I think the rewards, you know, speak for themselves you mentioned the Eagles. Uh, what's funny
0: is I have a friend that went and and saw them not that long ago and legit. My one question, they said, Oh, I just saw the Eagles. My, my only question I said, Oh, how are the harmonies? Like that's yeah. what I associate with the band. And they're like, Oh, it was incredible. So, uh, we've, we've made our way all the way to the final, uh, album here from the Sheepdog. So Out of Sight comes out in 2022, two singles, Find the Truth and I Want to Know You. I've uh, nominated for a Juno Award Rock Album of the Year's. Man, the Juno loves you guys. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I mean it can't be that the the Junos love you. It's that you guys put out great albums consistently and then they acknowledge that. But uh that that's awesome. Another Juno nomination last year. And I want to hit you with a stat here that I don't know if you're aware of this, but The Sheepdogs have charted top 10 singles in 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2015, 2017, 2018, 2021, and 2022. Uh, What do you account for that kind of longevity? I mean, for a band to have just one top 10 hit is huge. That's like a a game changer for a band. For you guys to basically have a top 10 hit every year since 2010, 2010
1: uh what what does that stat mean to you i didn't know that that's amazing <laughs> uh i guess it's just the it, it's nice to hear that i mean we're very committed to this like we we work at this you know like this is uh we we approach this like it's our job you know like we like i i try to work on songcraft every day you know or i practice or try to get a little bit better at what i do you know so um and i'm my brother would be thrilled to hear that because i know he has the same approach you know like we we try to take this seriously and we try to do what we do well and at a high level. So it's, it's, uh, it's great to hear that. (laughs) I didn't know. That's, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. That that means you have uh, no
0: throwaway singles, which is good. They're all legit, legit singles. You're releasing. Uh, You guys have, you guys have some shows coming up, some tours coming up. So um, a few shows here in, in September and then a tour in October and November with Larkin Poe across the UK and Europe. Uh, what can you share with our listeners about that tour? And, and if they're able to get out to those shows, what can they expect from a, a Sheepdogs show?
1: Well, we'll be open up for Larkin Poe, who are great you know, sisters out of uh, South Carolina. Maybe don't quote me on that, but, but they're great, you know, blues rock. Uh, pairing and uh, we'll be playing all over Europe with them. We're we're you know blues rock is king over there. They love that kind of stuff. So it'll be a great opportunity for us to get in front of some new people over there. Um, and you know Europe's been great. I feel like we've played some great shows, Europe and the UK over the past few years, but we're still kind of waiting to like really kind of break through. So we're constantly having people over there come up to us, being like, "You guys are amazing! How have I never heard of you before?" And I'm, so I'm just like, "We're right on the cusp of becoming, you know, a, a better-known band over there." But it, a big part of it is just continuing to get over there and playing more, and uh, you know, getting more exposure. So this tour will be great for that. I'm very much looking forward to getting over there. And uh, yeah, the rest of the summer, well, we're, we're playing at the CNE on Friday in Toronto. So doesn't get much more rock and roll than that. And then, so that's uh,
0: so today is Wednesday. Uh, I'll yeah. release this episode a little bit later today. So people will still have 48 hours to get to uh,
1: this. this Toronto repair, show. Baby. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think we got we got a couple shows in B.C. Um, Some festivals, before. it look like in yeah. Canada. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, we're doing a festival in Colorado. So, I mean, that's our typical summer is we just sort of bop around and play as many outdoor festival shows for the good people as we can. You know, so uh, we'll keep that going. And then, yeah, I mean, it's probably high time for us to start chipping away at a new record. So the uh, the party train rolls on.
0: Got to keep the uh, top ten single streak going into right. twenty twenty four. <laughs> uh, so what's awesome is I did the the Ricky interview, I believe, around February. I could be wrong. And just uh, maybe a few days later, you guys had your final show on this massive tour, and it was here in Ottawa at the NAC. I caught the. Uh-huh the final show of a massive tour and here is my quick review i i had uh great songs great high energy performance great musicianship lo- lots of badass guitar riffs and solos great harmonies the audience was loving it that's my random review uh from that Love show
1: it. not bad <laughs> eh yeah
0: not bad. All, that's all-
1: what we're trying to do yeah
0: <laughs> uh, and uh I have a, a fan question sent in. This is from Mike Lamond. His question is: why do you think people love that throwback southern rock sound when there's so much new music being put out into the world every day? Even the younger generations are grabbing towards it.
1: That's an excellent question. Uh I mean, I personally have always Love that late 60s, early 70s sound. Like, I think it's just sort of a golden era of pop music, you know, an era where recording techniques were evolving to the point where you capture stuff, overdub stuff, manipulate stuff in an artistic way. Now, the technology is so advanced that you don't even really have to have any level of musicianship to make music. Like, you can just be adept at manipulating software and you can create cool music. And that's cool in in its own way, but I like that blend of you still have to get a group of good musicians together to make music and I think that level that era late 60s early 70s with guys like the Beatles and stuff who were just starting to explore the studio in a way to get real trippy psychedelic cool stuff that still had a base level of human beings in the room playing music together that to me is just like the perfect blend of technology and actual musicianship that makes the best music ask me you know so uh, I just love the recordings of that era, the sound of, of you know, the aesthetic, the, like the, what the recording engineers were trying to get to me. Like that's the stuff that sounds the best is the 60s and 70s, you know? Um, I don't know. I mean, there's more people in the world now than there was then. So just by the sheer numbers of population, you'd think there'd be plenty of good musicians in the earth now, and there are. I just think the the ethos has changed. Like people are trying to sound different and not necessarily better to my ear. I don't know. I I, I kind of just think we, we the aesthetic peaked in that era for me, at least. And I think a lot of people agree with me. So,
0: so let's dive into the duo. So Bros, uh, that formed in 2014 with your brother, uh, Ewan. Uh, so Bros is stylized, all capitals, Bros. So do you have to say it correctly? Or do you have to go, Bros?
1: Is that is that how it's supposed to be? <laughs> No, I think we just did that to to make it like pop a little bit more on the page kind of thing. Uh, you don't have
0: to yell it. It's not all caps. You, someone yelling,
1: yelling is encouraged if you want to <laughs> yell it by all means. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we're not mad at it if someone yells it out. Oh, Where did the idea of starting another band with your brother come from? I guess you mentioned that maybe the Sheepdogs, it's you have to play within a, a certain a certain box uh, sonically. And you guys have love of other genres of music so did it feel like those songs you you couldn't you couldn't have them in the sheep sheepdogs repertoire so you needed something else
1: well i've always been a songwriter much much like my brother and when i first joined the sheepdogs it was very much in the capacity of a sideman like they were like hey we we're at the top of our game we got a, a formula that works but we want to add you as a keyboard player so i was very cognizant of like not wanting to like mess with the formula at all. But as time passed and I was playing with you and more and more, I was like, "Look, I got a bunch of songs that could work with the band." And he was like, "Well, sure. Um we could we could try some of those." And eventually I have written songs for Sheepdogs like, you know, recently in the last few years. But he was sort of saying at the time that uh, you know, we've got a formula that works and a sound that people like. But if you want to write some songs with me, we could start another project. So and we started the two of us it's actually funny despite being brothers who are musicians we never had really written songs or played original music together until that point you know in our mid-20s <laughs> um, but it went well because you know we have very similar taste in music and a lot of my early like I said before I, I my early taste in music was kind of cultivated from like raiding my brother's record collection he had this great record collection and I used to like I had a six cd boombox uh that i would go and like i would sit and play video games and i would get six different cds from ewan's collection and check them out and listen to them. and then when i was done i would go and he'd give me six more cds to check out of just like wide ranging genres and all over the place and so like we very much developed the same reference point for music so we would know all the same references and know all the same pieces of music and bands and stuff and have very similar tastes so it meant that we had a great shorthand when we were working together, you know? we, I would play a little reference to something and he'd be like, did you just quote Billy Preston uh, in Out of Space or something like that? I'd be like, "Why, well, yes I did. And then next thing we you know, we're off and the running with like, you know, almost like a telepathic level of uh, musical communication, which I think only comes from being brothers. Um, so yeah, I, I sent him a, a whole bunch of tunes that I had written and he sort of cherry picked a few to work on and we met at a studio in Toronto and started chipping out a few tunes and the first two that we worked on were tell me and brazil and uh, they sort of became the nature of this new project and then th- those two songs tell me is very much like a it's almost got like a hip-hop beat but with like uh cool. dialogue, stevie wonder uh vocal delivery and like lots of electric pianos and organs and stuff like that and, and which is a bit of a departure from sheepdogs kind of guitar driven sound and Brazil is almost like a kaleidoscopic 60s pop with just like weird tempo changes and meter changes and horns and it's like Baroque, weird, like it's just very eclectic. And so with sort of the framework of those two songs in mind, you and I were like, well, look, why don't we try and make an album of just like kind of weird and wonderful pop music. And just draw in whatever sources that we want the only exception being that let's not have any kind of like straight ahead rock and roll tunes because we'll save that kind of stuff sheepdogs camp and uh yeah so we made that first bros record and it kind of took off more than we kind of ever expected would from like a like a weird side project especially the song tell me just kind of blew up it was pretty sweet (laughs) yeah that
0: uh that that song i believe i could be wrong but it had like 13 million plays on Spotify. It had some like ridiculous number. It's
1: our highest across all of our projects. It's the highest uh, streaming song that we've had. It just really had a life of its own. So it's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah, so you you guys we mentioned formed in twenty fourteen. Then two years later, you guys released your debut album, Volume uh, Volume One, uh, in twenty sixteen. That that album has over a million spins, uh, just a million streams. What does it mean to you that that many people listen to this side project you guys started?
1: I mean, I was thrilled because it was a great chance for me to finally get my songs out there. Um, you know, obviously. I'm super shocked for the success of the Sheepdogs because it's a band I'm very invested in. But to get, you know, my original compositions out and have people engage with them, I was very thrilled with that. And uh it, it's also kind of nice because it's it's such sort of weird music that's very close to my heart, because it's just like we didn't set out to make anything deliberately uh with commercial appeal like the whole idea was to just make music essentially to like make each other laugh like i would just sort of make a song that's as goofy and ridiculous as possible and show it to you and you'd be like cool let's record it and then the idea that we can put that kind of music out there and other people have the same reaction is is nice it's nice to know that there's people out there who have similar you know eclectic musical tastes as us you know to make a, a weird personal record and have people react positively to it is a nice feeling yeah People out there are weird like we are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the uh
0: there's there's two singles, uh Tell Me that you've mentioned and couldn't hear a thing. Uh the the single Tell Me becomes the theme song for CBC radio program Q with Tom Power. Then you guys yeah. release a second full-length album, volume two, in 2021. There's another single, Never Gonna Stop. Between the Sheepdogs and Bros, you guys have over half a million listeners per month, just on Spotify. So can you, I want you to take a moment and think about half a million people every month listening to your music. Like, can you visualize that? I mean, how do you visualize half? You you play an arena, you know, I go down the street to the Ottawa Senators where they play and there's, I don't know, 22,000 people and you're looking at a massive arena, 22,000. And now, now picture 500,000, that's how many people per month listen to music you are a part of. Uh, I don't know. Can you can you just
1: uh talk about that for uh, a second? I don't know. That's that's amazing. Yeah. Uh I guess it's uh, an honor and a privilege to have that kind of platform, I guess. But just I don't know. It feels good. It feels great to know that people are into music, such a personal thing. It's it's you you work on creating these ideas. And for me, you know, the genesis of so many of my musical ideas is just like sitting by myself in a room, not unlike the one I'm in right now, plunking away on a musical idea. And the first thing that comes across your head is always, is this any good? Is this anything? Can I do anything with this? You know? And then to get that vindication from, you know, playing live or having or knowing that people are listening to your music and exploring it and appreciating it is a wonderful feeling. <laughs> you know, so it's all it's just gratitude, you know. I'm just so pleased. <laughs> So most people won't
0: know what it's like to be in a band with a family member. Can you share what what is the best part and the worst part of being in a band with your brother? I guess best
1: and worst parts. Well, the best part would probably be that uh, what I referenced earlier, that kind of musical shorthand and the the understanding that we have. Like you can play something and I'll immediately kind of understand what he's going for or the reference or like what's informing the part that he's kind of playing, or even sometimes I can help almost finish his musical sentences. Cause I'll be like, Oh, you're kind of going for like a, like a George Harrison thing here. Or like, Oh, maybe you're going for like a, you know, a Stevie wonder or slide the family stone groove over here, or you want this kind of thing. Uh, and so we can just like, we like when we're cooking, we, we can move at such a quick pace and just like really, really be in the zone, you know? Uh, and also the idea of with a family member in the band you've always got that kind of level of support and uh and love and care you know if a and street it,
0: fight uh, breaks out you know you've got yeah. at least one guy that has your back
1: exactly and believe it or not that has actually come up in the 10 years or so that we've played with dogs. but uh the other yeah. side of the coin is that nobody can piss you off like your brother you know and we argue and bicker just like does he play
0: the uh does he play the big brother card uh every now oh, and then constantly
1: yeah <laughs> how, d- how dare he yes dude he it. it's you know This is uh, literally the role he was born to play. (laughs) It's his rite of
0: passage. You, You guys, you guys actually have a theme song. There's a bros theme song. When that plays, do you feel like a superhero with your own theme song? And then when you guys play live, please tell me that when before you go on, the lights are down and the theme song plays and you walk out to it like a wrestler. Does that ever happen?
1: We, we should do that. We, we actually just play it in the set like a normal piece of music, but uh, we absolutely need to do it as walk-on music. Um, yeah, man. I mean, that was conceived as like a like a Lalo Schifrin cop show kind of theme, you know, like uh, like Dirty Harry or uh, Bullets or something like that. Um, so the idea that you and I are like, you know, badass cops on the mean streets of San Francisco or something like that. But, but yeah, that's very much the energy that we're trying to create with that, those kinds of songs. We love, you know, you know yeah wrestling and 70s cop shows and action movies and and cinema you know and and stuff that has that kind of like funky percussive music and the idea of writing a theme song to an imaginary show like that was just something that really got our imaginations working wild you know brass and, and percussion and and propulsive rhythms and that kind of stuff you know stuff that makes you want to like have a sweet mustache and wear sunglasses and slide over the hood of a car you yeah.
0: <laughs> know, I think you succeeded with that song. That's the vibe that I get. So I have one final bros question and then we'll dive into your, uh, your new album. And I'm, I'm so excited to dive into it. I have so many questions and I really enjoyed listening to it. So a uh, final question about bros, uh, you guys released uh, a Christmas EP. Uh, have you guys always wanted to write and release Christmas music? I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, if you were able to talk to Mariah Carey or Michael Buble or Josh Groban, they'll tell you that christmas music could be quite lucrative if you get the right song that catches on
1: i think well i'll I'll preface it by saying that um you and i love sort of classic songwriting uh and so many of the the sort of classic secular i'll say secular christmas songs because they're not the like old time you know uh oh come all you faithful kind of stuff but like (laughs) um they're they're sort of like jazz standards, and they're they're written in sort of like classic musical tropes, like you know, delivered by crooners, and you know, like you know, let it snow, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we love the idea of challenging ourselves to write, you know, that kind of like classic Christmas song. And the other thing is, like, yes, any Christmas music that you release is going to be perceived as a bit of a cash grab, just because like the commercialism of Christmas time is insane. But it's just a fact, and. Uh, You know, it's nice to have music with, make music with a captive audience. And it's just the fact that if you make Christmas music, it'll definitely be gobbled up by people who are willing to consume stuff at Christmas time. So, but I think we kind of lean into that and make our music deliberately a little bit uh, schmarmy and cheesy, (laughs) especially our Christmas stuff. But, you know, we also love old timey feel good, uh, classically written songs like that. And it's a fun challenge to try and get yourself to write like a sort of the idea of like a timeless evergreen Christmas song is is fun for two guys who like writing, you know, the challenge of writing songs in any genre or any style. So it's a thing that we've kind of challenged ourselves with, and you know, lo and behold, they've actually been quite successful. So we kind of keep chipping away at uh, making a few Christmas songs every now and then, and uh, we're probably going to wind up doing a Christmas album one of these years, compiling everything all together. So
0: that's awesome. Yeah, I, I looked into kind of the 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 financial numbers between uh, behind the Christmas hits every year. And Mariah Carey, if she did nothing else, period, like just Queen of Christmas, right? If she (laughs) did nothing but have her music play at Christmas, forget like the massive catalog of music she has and all, all the other ways she makes money just at Christmas from her past Christmas catalog. She makes between six hundred thousand and one point two million dollars every Christmas uh, from Christmas staples. So and and Miracle, man. <laughs> you know, like all I want for Christmas is you. I think it's the biggest one. And every year it goes to number one. Like she legit every year has a number one single in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So stupid. Like it's ridiculous.
1: But I mean, like, hey, if you, if you can get in on that, you know, like, I don't know. Not to be like, just going, I sound oh, angry, oh, but I'm oh. just jealous. That's all. No, I am too. And also that song's kind of a banger, you know, like <laughs> I, I, I've gotten to the point in my life where like, you know, yeah, it's a cheesy Christmas song, but you can just analyze it from like the craft that went into making a song like that. Like the chord changes are good. The melody is good. It's expertly played. And also just like, like hats off to her. She made a great Christmas song. Of course, you should make that kind of money every year, you know, like you just, yep. Appreciate the game, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we're we're gonna put it right now. We're gonna put it out into the ether to the Christmas gods that the the sheepdogs that bros that you guys have the next big Christmas staple that gets in <laughs> rotation every single year. So there you go. I just put it out there and hopefully they're paying attention. See what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you you're not mad at it. Uh so we're gonna dive into your solo career. And uh, I have the perfect segue. Are you ready for this? Yeah, man. So I have uh, someone that has gone on tour with the Sheepdogs uh, who also mentions how big of a fan he is of your new solo album. So that's going to segue from uh, Sheepdogs from Bros into the Seamus stuff. So this comes in from Bruce Nickel and he. His official title that he bestowed upon himself for the sheepdogs, backline technician and goodwill ambassador. So uh, there you go. And, and, sh- and this is what Bruce Nichols says. Seamus is a great fella in a group filled with great fellas. Musically, he's incredible. As an organist, keyboard player, he is above reproach. As a guitar player, his ideas are fresh and interesting, which is difficult to do in a band full of excellent guitar players. Most importantly, he's a great hang, very intelligent, and a total blast, especially when it comes to pop culture and obscure film and TV references. I'm a big fan of his new solo album, Best Fantasy Rock Album to Come Out in a While. So that's from Bruce.
1: Thank you, Bruce. You're a beaut. Love you, man. That's great.
0: Bruce is a beaut. So let's let's dive into uh, to the solo album. So for our loyal podcast listeners, we have some that listen to every single interview, regardless of who the artist is. So for those listeners that maybe haven't had a chance to listen to the new album, how how do you describe the the sound of the music? I know it's like the hardest thing to do for a musician that doesn't want to get boxed into any genre.
1: Well I call it fantasy rock which is a genre that kind of doesn't exist so a lot of people are confused by it but I think of it as in the early 70s and late 60s all the like sort of pre-metal hard rock bands were just sort of make an awesome blues influenced rock and roll like hard rock you know like your Sabbath and Zeppelin and you know Uriah Heap and bands like that and they were all kind of writing songs that vaguely flirted with like fantasy imagery you know like uh Led Zeppelin was using Tolkien lyrics and uh you know Uriah Heap literally has an album called Demons and Wizards (laughs) and and just all that kind of stuff you know songs about dragons and that kind of stuff which just sort of seems like sort of cheesy um juvenile, you know, dude subject matter. And it is, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but like I I always loved that stuff. Uh because I loved fantasy growing up as a kid. I loved, you know, Greek mythology and Norse mythology, you know, tales of Hercules and stuff and uh my favorite movie when I was a little kid was uh Jason and the Argonauts, the 1963 version with the like claymation skeletons at the end and the hydra and you know Clash of the Titans with Release of the Kraken and all that kind of stuff. So I loved all the kind of like classic high medieval fantasy tropes and stuff like that. And I love that all these sort of hard rock and early 70s concept albums always seem to kind of like flirt with that stuff a little bit. And then, you know, I'm also a gamer. Uh, video games, fantasy novels, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's all that stuff comes very naturally to me. And to blend those ideas, I thought would be a fun, a fun kind of exercise. So, I mean, musically it's basically just sort of psychedelic rock and there's a little, maybe a little bit of jam band jazz stuff in there. Like I had a guy tell me, he thought it sounded like Herbie Hancock. I was like, sick, love that. You know, I'll take it. Yeah. But you know, the songs are sort of basically just collections of riffs and, uh, and you know, if we're going to get real jazz school about it, you could say they're all just sort of like little modal mood pieces that kind of hang out in one key. And then there's solo explorations and stuff like that. But then, the sort of high concept part of it came in piece, like looping all the pieces together thematically with like little interludes and stuff like that. So uh, the whole album flows together, like one long, long form piece of music, you know, like uh, the dark side of the moon, I think would be a great example. It's just a, a long form record. Everything's linked thematically, but if you actually listen to dark side of the moon, most of the time they're just like hanging out on two chord jams, you know, like they're just sort of like, like musically, it's not that complex, but they just present it as like this grand, long operatic form, of, like a, you know, a big grand piece of music. And I love that approach. You know, I love the idea that you could create this huge epic art form, but at the end of the day, it's basically still just like, you know, two chord jams, which are my favorite things musically. <laughs> so I had that idea. I had a whole bunch of riffs and stuff that didn't kind of fit into the regular verse chorus, um songwriting approach that I often employ so I kind of looped them all together into this loose narrative that I had of the idea this I had these characters in mind I had the idea of a heroic character called the shepherd and a villainous character called the wolf and the idea that these two characters would have some kind of conflict so I sort of wrote this loose fable involving these two characters jammed out a bunch of ideas and then I got my uh the dungeon master and my D campaign to come play some drums for me and I got the bass player in my first ever bass band, or in my first ever band to come play some bass. And the three of us jammed out these ideas. And I, I filled in the rest of the gaps playing lots of keyboard and guitar. And we were like, let's just go full nerd, full fantasy, and and try and tell it like an epic cycle through like psychedelic rock jams. And that was kind of the idea behind it.
0: <laughs> that, that might be the best description of someone's music. We we've ever had. That was such a good uh, <laughs> intro into into the album. Uh, you made a bunch of points that it, that I was gonna make. Uh, that was that's perfect. So I actually am skipping ahead to notes because I had this written down. The whole album has a vision for the music, the lyrics, the sound, the production, the art. It's all one cohesive package, like Dark Side of the Moon. That was the example <laughs> that I had. So, so we're on the same page, and that's you know one of the greatest albums of all time. So if that's the one that comes to mind as you know an artist that it, it doesn't seem like anything is just randomly thrown together it seems like there's been a lot of thought behind everything like the album artwork ties into the lyrics and the characters and the sound and the production and the music videos and the card game and the map like everything is is like the stroke of one genius that sees it all and, and fleshes it out in different forms. Uh, so that's like the highest praise that I can give, I think.
1: Thank you. Well, I, I mean, the idea was sort of, you're not just making songs, you're making a world, you're making a world for the listener to get lost into, you know, and the idea that everything related to the album just creates more intricacies to get, to get lost into, you know, like I I love, it, take like fantasy books like i read the the george r r martin game of thrones series as the show was coming out i actually saw the show first but then i was like oh, I should check out these books and then i was like oh these are sick and when you spend a lot of your life in a tour van it's great to have a really long fantasy novel to get lost into but what's great about those books is that they have the narrative but they also have all these tertiary parts to the story that maybe are not super necessary to include for like the bulk narrative but they they make the they're creating a world to get lost into. Like you have all these other families and other continents and like, they, just the idea that you're lost in this beautiful world that you can escape into is is sort of part of the fun. So I tried to bring that approach to making the record, you know, like I've got the songs and the songs are sort of the core narrative of the idea that the shepherd and the wolf and they meet, they do battle and it's good versus evil and man versus nature and blah, blah, blah. But also there's jams and there's there's fun extraneous stuff and and cool grooves and mood pieces to get lost into. And then the album would have like, a, you know, the gatefold when you open it up would have a map, you know, to get like lost in the world and like a, a story and the idea that you can just sort of like I don't know, smoke a doobie and enter this world and just hang out in the world of the shepherd and the wolf for a while was kind of like my big dream, you know, like, <laughs> step into my lair, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) I read read the whole Game of
0: Thrones series like you did. The first book is so good. The first book is like ridiculous. The second book's great. Uh, They're all good. But man, I remember the first book being like, holy crap, that is a great book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you do you do you think he'll ever release the uh the final two books? It's a long time coming here.
1: I'm starting to have my doubts, you know. He's not a
0: young pup either, and he's not in great shape. So
1: no, and also the fact that I think the, the real diehards of the series weren't particularly happy with how the series ended. I feel like he's gonna be he has to kind of rewrite maybe what he yeah, had. he either has to rewrite it, or I feel like he's just gonna be like, let the cultural phenomenon die down and move it. Like like he seems like he's happy exploring other things. Like um, we went to that meow wolf uh museum that he he, he's like involved in this this like creative art space in santa fe called meow wolf which is like a haunted house and a museum all in one where you can just go and explore this crazy place it's really cool immersive art experience and it's like financed and supported by uh, george R. r martin i just sort of feel like he's he's getting into other ventures you know he's he's made his nest egg off of the books and the show and now he's I don't know if he has any desire to finish
0: it. Well, there's the the prequels, right? House of the Dragon. I think there's yeah. a John. I think there's a John Snow uh, s- series coming out as well. I've heard. And um, you're into video games, so Elden Ring came out, and it's
1: ah,
0: oh. one of the biggest games ever, one of the best reviewed games of all time. And and he's the one that like developed the world and and the the characters and everything. So yeah, man, this guy, yeah, this guy's <laughs> like. Doing everything. I don't know if we should just lock him in a room to finish the book. or <laughs> We might have too, too many lucrative uh, opportunities. Um, so the album is "The Shepherd and the Wolf." Wolf uh, came out February twenty fourth of, of this year. There's three singles: so "Days of High Adventure," "Song of a Wolf," and "The Big Dog." How how has the reception been so far from from critics or fans? What are you hearing? Like you're you're so close to the project, and and you know you wrote the songs. Obviously, you love it. Uh, have you been hearing great things? Like I, I listened to it. I I have, you know, I'll, I'll be telling you my thoughts about it as we go. And then Bruce loved it. Uh, what are you hearing uh, on your end?
1: Well, it's, it's niche. And I kind of knew that making it, like I was very much leaning into this concept, this sort of hyper nerdy fantasy rock concept. Uh, and that, that was the thing while I was finalizing it, my girlfriend was just constantly saying like, put something in there for the girls, make sure this is still accessible to girls, you know, cause it's such a like juvenile boys thing. But uh, the, from what I've experienced, the people who love it, really love it. And that's great. Cause those those are like my people, you know, like they love all the little references to like the seventies rock mythology and stuff. And they love that there's a world and, and you know, to, to explore and all the, like the fantasy stuff. So the people who are into it are just like, Oh yes, finally, like, this is awesome, which is great. I think maybe the casual music fan is maybe a little bit like, Haha, okay, you know, but they might still like some of the songs. I remember I, I famously got a bit of a lukewarm reaction from my uncle, who's uh, such a supporter of the Sheepdogs. And he loves bros because he loves the kind of classic pop. Like he's a, like a jazz musician kind of guy, you know? So I think when I made this like archaic sort of proto heavy metal psychedelic rock record he's a little like "Uh, okay what is this like how do i you know (laughs) you need to get them a few edibles and then
0: have them listen to it again (laughs) he's just not in the right uh frame of mind to to listen to it i i I feel like when you said you know the people that love it really love it it reminds me of like rush fans or like tool fans it's like those that get it really get it and those that love it really love it and those are the fans that you want anyways
1: absolutely yeah i mean I've been really pleased. I knew, like, you know, when you're setting out to make a record like this, that you're kind of like sacrificing a bit of mainstream appeal. But the beauty of that is that like, look, hey, I got I got a lot of musical outlets. I'm blessed in that I've got sheepdogs. I've got bros. I've got, you know, if I want to, I can grab my horn and head out and meet some buddies and just play at the, you know, the Cameron House in Toronto and play blues and stuff if I want. Like, I got a lot of musical outlets. So it was pretty awesome for me to get a chance to make this really specific you know, musical project that I was really passionate about and just like kind of go for it, you know. So then it is really rewarding to have people who are into fantasy and into that type of rock music come up to me and be like, dude, I'm super stoked that you made this record. Um and and that, you know, that just warms my heart. That that thrills me. So so I I put on my
0: good pair of studio headphones. I listened to the album three times in its entirety. And these yeah. are the notes that I took down. I wrote, the album has such a great vibe. It's an album that makes you want to hop in the car, roll down the windows, go on an adventure and play
1: the album in its entirety. Those are my notes. That's awesome, man. Definitely. Yeah. The adventure vibe was something I really liked the idea, like the idea of escapism and getting lost and just, I don't know, just, just committing wholeheartedly to the idea of adventure, you know, like it's it's almost like a juvenile idea, but like one that I remember as a kid believing so strongly, like the that feeling I would get when I would, as a kid, fire up, you know, the first Lord of the Rings movie or sit down with like a new Zelda game and just be like, here we go. Adventure time. Let's go. <laughs> like that was like,
0: so uh, the, the hero's journey, right? The call to yeah. adventure.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Old Joseph Campbell there. Yeah. Good.
0: <laughs> what is that? Uh, the, something, a thousand, the man with the a thousand... with a thousand faces. That's a, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a tough read, but a, a good one that's, that's, <laughs> that pays off by the end of it. Uh, so let's, let's talk about the, uh, the first single and, and the, uh, the the first song on the album so days of high adventure uh y- you got the title from conan the barbarian is that correct yeah yeah so the, is that somewhere
1: it's the uh the opening monologue when uh i think it's his his archer uh describing like the early days and the the creation of the the conan universe and just he does it in this great kind of gravelly delivery uh and he, it's it's just one of those like deliciously overacted scenes in like a fantasy movie where a guy is just like really going for it. <laughs> and like, like, you know, if you were walking down the street and you met a man in modern society speaking like that, you'd be like, This is a crazy man. But in a fantasy movie, it's just so it just helps you get into character, you know, so good. And he says something about when the the oceans drank Atlantis and the the rise of the sons of Arius and all this great archaic language that just gets me so fired up as a fantasy nerd. And I love that he, he ends the speech about let me tell you about the days of high adventure and then lightning strikes and Conan's forging his sword and slaying barbarian. I'm getting all fired up here. Just thinking
0: about it. I we're, thought getting, it was a great- we're getting to look at your acting skills. I, I, yeah, yeah exactly. This is going to go in your uh, demo reel to get some acting. Yeah. <laughs> <kick. laughs>
1: I thought it was a great, a great name for a rock song. Cause it just like really gets you fired up and ready to go, you know?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's kind of inspired by uh, Edgar Winters, Frankenstein, um, <laughs> or at least you, you kind of refer to the song as being in the, a similar vein for we, man, we have some really young listeners, like the last interview or two interviews ago, we had a seven year old that sent in a question. So there's some, you know, the, if for those that don't know Edgar Winter and don't know the song Frankenstein, can you share what the comparison would be to uh to Days of High Adventure?
1: First thing I would say was YouTube that song right now because it's awesome. <laughs> but then uh th- that song is great. It's it's a, a weird sprawling rock and roll masterpiece of it's it's all instrumental and it's just like a series of cool riffs paired together, a whole bunch of different instruments. Edgar Winter starts playing keyboards and then he rips saxophone and then he starts playing uh, marimba or something or like a, timbales, I think. He's just like all over the place and it's such a weird song. It's called Frankenstein because they patched it together from uh, a, a bunch of different songs. They just like stitched a bunch of riffs together to literally make a patchwork riff monster of a jam. And it's great. A uh, song I've always loved, just because it's bizarre and funky and rocking and super awesome. And I also love that it's a frontman who plays a bunch of different instruments, kind of like myself, you know. So, uh, yeah, and I, and I also love that 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 song was was popular and people loved it despite the fact that it doesn't have a verse or a chorus or even any singing or a like, super bizarre structure. <laughs> you know, it's just like it's embracing its weirdness, but it's still super cool. Uh, I don't know. I, I love that. I love the idea of writing a song that was like that, just a bunch of riffs in a row that didn't kind of make any sense, but was just cool and sweet. I don't know. Got me yeah. fired up. <laughs> I, I think the two
0: most popular instrumental songs of all time, I think, are Frankenstein and Green Onions. I think those are the two. Uh, nice. <laughs> most popular or at least like biggest hits that were instrumental of all time, which is pretty, uh, pretty cool. Uh, so as we keep going through the songs on the album, so we have 10 feet tall. And so if the video, you're into video games, if the video game guitar hero came to you and requested just one song off of this, uh, this Seamus album to add to the next guitar hero that people could play along to what song would you choose? And I'm asking when we talk about 10 feet tall, because to me with man, that, that fast tempo, the awesome guitar riffs, the crazy guitar solo, it, it'd be hard to beat. I mean, you could take almost any of the songs on this album because there's so many badass guitar riffs, but is there a song you would choose above 10 feet tall? What do you think?
1: That's probably the best candidate. Yeah. Uh, 10 feet tall is the most sort of, has the closest to like a regular structure. Like it's got verse and chorus and and you know, it, it it could stand alone as a regular pop song, but I thought it fits so well into this album of kind of like eccentric oddities because it kind of captured the energy of the wolf so well, you know, like it's a real just like I'm a wild force of nature, don't fuck with me kind of song, you know. Uh yeah, it could definitely have a little guitar hero energy in there, you know, like the guitar solo on there was actually played by by Jim. Jimbo skill so oh, nice got that next level uh virtuosity that you know you can only get with a guy his caliber so I had him come by the studio for a day and he played that solo and he played on a few other songs so yeah he's it's, it's got the guitar hero flavor for sure so we we were just talking about
0: instrumental songs so Green Onions and Frankenstein <laughs> and uh on this album so there's some instrumental songs like Giant Overture and Shepherd's uh Lament is that Lament is how you say it right yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So those three songs. I'm just curious, as a musician, as a songwriter, how do you decide that these three songs should remain instrumental and not try to add vocals and lyrics? Like where where does that line get stopped? You're like, no, 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 this has to remain instrumental.
1: Well, that's a good point. Um I think something like Shepherd's Lament was I was really much going for a mood piece. Like I wasn't trying to have it be like a pop song or anything like that. It's just supposed to be the sad kind of, uh, yeah, evocative piece of music. Like there are vocalizations in that song. There's no lyrics. Like there's like sort of like Gregorian chanting, like, oh, like that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. You easily could have put vocals on it, I suppose, but I think it just sort of the the, sometimes when you're trying to evoke a mood or an emotion, not having words in the song makes it easier you know because as soon as there's lyrics that's sort of what the the human ear gravitates towards and then it just puts everything in a different context whereas if something's something's instrumental there's sort of a more vague energy to it and I think you can kind of infer different emotions from it that way you know um giant was a piece that I just tried to write like an adventure theme like I was literally just trying to write like you know a a (laughs) metal-ish you know metal kind of like series of riffs like you know not not far off of uh of uh you know Frankenstein again kind of thing and overture was just my like I was just envisioning like a fanfare when like a king walks into a room you know something like that So, so I guess there would be an element of like film scoring to some of this kind of stuff, like the idea that I'd be writing music for a movie that doesn't exist yet kind of thing. Um, Yeah. And I think just keeping it, uh, keeping it instrumental means that you kind of have a heightened uh, emphasis on emotion and less on like the intellectual side of what the, you know, the lyrics might mean.
0: So the song Giant, someone yells out Giant or something, don't they? So yeah. w- what's funny is as I'm I'm listening and I'm like, oh, there's an instrumental, there's an instrumental. Then I'm like, am I allowed to include it in instrumental? Because there is one word, like someone yells out it. giant. I was like, oh,
1: <laughs> do I have to cross that off of the
0: instrumental list?
1: I think a lot of those tunes, I'm, in, I'm like I'm sort of envisioning a uh yeah, like a visual element, but like that song I'm imagining literally imagining like a giant coming over the hillside and attacking a town and you can like almost in like a Godzilla movie you can hear the person go giant like you know he's coming kind of thing like you know uh yeah it, it goes back to that kind of film scoring for a film that doesn't exist idea you know this idea of a giant emerging attacking a town and and what would that sound like if you were writing the score to that in a movie you know like I think that's kind of where I was coming from when I was writing that so
0: so I, I have a background in audio engineering. So when I'm listening, it's like I'm really listening. And I, I thought that the album sounded incredible. So, the, you know, you got to give credit to the, the engineer that's doing the tracking. There's the mixing. There's the mastering. It, it sounds great. And also more on the production side of like, the 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 sounds and the creative decisions that are made. It, it, there's a ton of atmosphere to it, like it's a thick, you know, it's a weird word to describe an album, but there's like a very thick and dense sound, like you're stepping into another world, just like reading the Game of Thrones books with all the world building. You hear that oh, sonically yeah. as well. And uh, I have uh, some words sent in here from someone that had something to do with how the album sounds so this is from dan weston who mastered uh the album uh dan weston says he keeps it short and sweet he says seamus it actually has nothing to do with the album he says seamus i appreciate your warmth and candor while showing me how to play darts as i slowly lost consciousness recently so that's from (laughs) dan weston what is he
1: talking about here uh well Dan and, and I and some of the other guys who uh, frequent Taurus Recording, where we made the record, uh, we'll, we'll go bowling every few months and uh, sometimes have a few drinks. <laughs> and uh, we were playing some uh, some darts last time. And uh, yeah, it's good. <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. <laughs> Thanks for the kind words, buddy. <laughs>
0: That's, funny. That's funny. So we, the, the song, Song of a Wolf. There's such an amazing groove between the bass, the guitar, and the drums. Uh, yeah. You had mentioned the the other two members that you you basically grew up with them. You've known them for a long time. Is that correct? Yeah. With uh, well,
1: Soren who plays bass uh, was like one of my best pals in high school, played bass in my first ever band. Uh, he was the first guy to move to Toronto when I mentioned that my band was splitting up and guys were moving to Toronto and I kind of followed suit. He was the guy who kind of let the charge. So a lot of musical memories with him and it was great to reconnect and make and work on this record together. And yeah, Matt Worry-Smith, the, uh, the drummer, <clears throat> was uh, the, a guy I met in Toronto, you know, similarly shared a lot of tastes in music and fantasy and stuff like that. And we actually started playing D&D together and he's the dungeon master of my D&D campaign. So I thought it'd be a natural fit to get him involved in a fantasy rock project. And he brings so much good, positive, creative energy and, and just sort of like, wildness that i thought he would be great like i love the idea of casting him as the wolf like if i'm the shepherd he would be the wolf and then we kind of like vibe off of each other's energy in that regard
0: and then does that mean uh soren is the uh the giant
1: Warren is the giant yes to, to complete the, the trilogy there <laughs>
0: the, the holy trifecta so uh exactly. i i was able to infiltrate the shamus camp and I have some kind words sent in from both of those guys. and oh, uh They must like you because they each wrote quite a bit. So here we go. I'm going to do my best <laughs> to read through these. So uh, it's pronounced Soren? Soren, yeah. Soren, okay. So Soren, who plays bass, says, Seamus is a great friend and one of the most authentic and musically talented people I know. Even through all of his success and achievements, he has remained the same genuine friend that he was When we met back in high school, I think that says a lot about his character, his talents on multiple instruments, great ears and a natural instinct for writing catchy hooks and riffs makes him musically unstoppable. Seamus has always had a strong artistic vision, and it's incredible to see that continue to grow and evolve over the years. I can't wait to hear what's next. So that's from Soren. And then... And then right under the wire, I had to write this out by hand because I had already printed my question. So this came in right before we hopped on here. Uh, Matt sent this in. He says, I'll see if I can read my own writing. It's not good. (laughs) Seamus is not only a bandmate, but also a buddy, a pal, and dare I say, friend. It's been one of the great privileges of my life to be included in any of his musical projects. Easy to be around always authentically himself talented fun and just a great hang i love that guy that's from matt
1: oh, oh you're killing me with these kind words here, man i'm getting a, get all misty here <laughs>
0: we got the whole power trio the holy trifecta that that's tied in here
1: that's wonderful thanks guys appreciate that that's, that's awesome
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as as we wrap up talking about the album here uh so you you made a music video for the song the big dog and yeah. uh you see a showdown between the shepherd and the wolf. Uh, Can you just talk about the, uh, the the music video a little bit? We'll, we'll get our, our, our listeners to go to YouTube and, and give it a watch.
1: Yeah. Well, basically it was uh, Rob Fidel, who's a buddy of ours that we met through um, our visual art guru, Matt Dunlap. He's a LA guy. uh, Who's just got a, this wonderful animation style. that's so quirky and, uh, and charming and idiosyncratic and he actually did the music video for a theme from bros which was amazing he's done work for the sheepdogs in the past he's just his animation style is so kind of like fun and wild and kind of unhinged that i really like it and he's just a great dude too so i reached out to him and he was he loved the the concept of the album and like the vibe of it and uh, i just said like just give me like a showdown piece of the the shepherd and the wolf like you you know meeting in the 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 meadow at midnight, and they're going to do battle. And he just like took it and rang with it, and came up with this weird and wild video that I just love so much. So I thought it was a great, great thing to include, and also just the, the any kind of. I'm such an animation freak. Like I love, you know, my favorite show growing up was The Simpsons. So I love animated stuff. So just to get an animated, uh, uh, you know, version of of this story that I've created, I was pretty thrilled. So it's cool. So I'm going
0: to throw something out here, and let me know if I am completely wrong with this statement so when listening to the song there's this epic organ solo that pans left and right and let me know if I'm completely crazy so as I'm listening to this I can picture like a battlefield like picture Braveheart like left to right and you have the two sides and I'm picturing like the shepherd on one side the wolf on the other side and it's it's like the the organ solo on the left is like the shepherd coming to battle, and then it goes to the right, and it's the the wolf coming in, and it, they're all coming in. Does that make any sense,
1: or was I on drugs? Absolutely, dude. I mean, hopefully both, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, man, that's totally it. Like, I love the idea of like uh, you know, dueling dueling instrumental solos. I think it's such a great idea. You know, when you've got high octane rock and roll music, with lots of high energy, and guys really going for it, playing, you know. Like it's, there's, there's almost like a battle quality to it. And like, and the idea of dueling melodies and dueling ideas. And then when you can hard pan them in a studio, like that, so it literally sounds like they're running at each other. Like, yeah, I love that. I love that kind of evocative feels. So oh, you're right on the mark, man. That's great. The, uh, the, the
0: artwork is amazing. I mean, the, I've, I've seen, I haven't seen the whole thing cause I'm not physically holding it, yeah. but <laughs> the, the cover artwork is incredible. What, what can you say about the, the cover?
1: So that's uh, Arthur Doyle, who plays in a wicked band called uh, Tupperware Remix Party. He's a great drummer, but he's also a really great visual artist who, again, just just got the concept of it right away. He's like, you want like a a bad 70s paperback cover, right? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So I just kind of gave him the, the kind of like mythos of the world that I created. I was like, here's sort of the idea, you know, Shepard, Wolf, Fantasy Universe, Roger Dean, you know, that kind of thing. Frank Frazetta, you know, Boris Vallejo. And he just took it and ran with it and and just came up with this awesome sci-fi fantasy cover that was just absolutely perfect. I loved it. So can't say enough good things about him.
0: So I have the final quote of the interview uh, from Arthur Doyle himself. So he keeps it short and sweet. He says, Seamus is super nice and a very talented dude. There you go from Arthur. Just a little, just a little, just dangled a few little kind words, which is more than more kind words than we normally hear every day. So oh, that's nice. Make me feel good. <laughs> so I have I have one final uh, statement about this album. I'm about to make a bold statement. Do you think you can handle the boldness? It's about I'll to come? try. I'll try my best. So. Every Friday when new albums come out, I mean, there's usually, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 new albums that come out every Friday. I check the list. I add all the albums to Spotify. I listen to almost every new album released every year. I'm just a big music nerd. And I am going to make a bold statement. I believe this is in the top five best albums released so far in 2023. And I've listened to almost everything. So uh, I have... In my top five, I have four albums, I believe so far, like in the runner for album of the year. So I have albums from Boy Genius, Half Moon Run, Katie Tupper, and you. That's what I got, man. So I'm I'm not. Oh. <laughs> That's a good company it, to be in. <laughs> yeah, it's some high praise. So for our listeners, if you made it this far, go check out the album. It's on all the streaming platforms. It's available on vinyl as well. Um I I believe it is totally worth your time and uh, maybe that's the best review someone can get. It's, I, I, it's an album of the year contender for me.
1: Worth your time. Wow. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate that. A lot of love went into making the record and uh, yeah, please check it out if if you want to. And uh, that's wonderful, man. Thank you. (laughs) So I have, I have a hypothetical question for you. Uh,
0: Let's, Let's go into the future. I'm talking 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years from now. Most of today's music has has dissipated. It's been erased from human consciousness. However, there's still one Sheepdog song around. There's still one Bro's song around. And there's still one Seamus song around uh, that people are still listening to. If you could choose one song from each project to represent Each of those projects, what song would you choose? So it doesn't have to be the most known song or the biggest single, but just to you, what would you keep around a thousand years from now to represent you essentially in those three different, uh, projects? This is a tough question, man. The hard ones are at the end of the interview. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You're backloaded in here. Um, well, I think for bros I'd have to go with tell me because that's just such a juggernaut of a song and it's just brought so much, uh, good, notoriety to that project it's the song that everyone knows from that band um and it's just also a great fun super song to play live uh for Seamus I probably go maybe Days of High Adventure because it kind of just encapsulates what that project's all about Uh, it's a uh, long sprawling riff based nerdy jam kind of thing uh you know it's got a, a bridge that really takes it into a different level And it's got, I don't know, just a good kind of crest And general arc to it uh, For Sheepdogs Oh, that's a, that's a tough one
0: There's so many albums, so many songs So many no, hit singles, what do you choose? A
1: long, strange trip, yeah <laughs> uh, You know what? One, one of my favorite songs to play live And one that I think really Encapsulates the whole spirit of that band is I'm Gonna Be Myself um, Just because it's just got such a great anthemic quality to it. Uh, positive, self-affirming message, which is sort of what I think of kind of what rock and roll is really all about. Uh, really fun to play live. People always go nuts when we play it. Uh, we always have a big breakdown in the middle lately. Ewan's been referencing some Allman Brothers licks in there, which always get people going. It's just sort of a summer staple. Uh, yeah, and I just love the, the the sentiment of that song. It's just a great affirming anthemic fuck yeah kind of a song so I'll go I'll go with that gonna be myself
0: those are those are good choice good choices Uh, I have two final questions Uh, when you look back on your life and career what are you most proud of and what are you most grateful for
1: I'm just grateful to still be here still be doing what I'm doing to have an audience of people who are into what I do is amazing and I'm so grateful for that Ooh, what am I proud of? Um, I guess that I stuck with it. I, they kind of go hand in hand. I mean, I've had the opportunity to do what I do, which is amazing, but also the fact that I've been able to take that opportunity and run with it and work at this and get better at it, or hopefully get better at it, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, that that discipline, I think, to work. I think a lot of people who achieve success, especially in music, can kind of let it go to their heads and, and maybe you can kind of fritter away some opportunities. I think the fact that we've had a pretty long career and hopefully you can continue to have a long career uh is a testament to our willingness to work hard and and the discipline to not take any of this for granted and 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 work and continue to make good music, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought for a second you were
0: gonna say most proud of having your own theme song. So
1: <laughs> well, of course, that yeah, that that's goes yeah. you're, you're
0: just used to having your own theme song yeah. it's not a big deal yeah. anymore you know once you have your own theme song it's just it is what it is you know hey <laughs> that's funny uh so final question uh if you could go back in time and you could sit down next to your 10 year old self and you could take all the years of living since then all the the um, mentorship and lessons and experience and highs and lows What words of advice do you whisper to cute little Seamus that's sitting there to help guide him through this human adventure, this human existence?
1: Probably tell him to get some guitar lessons. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I'm I'm lucky enough to have led a life without any huge glaring missteps, I think. (laughs) You know, something like, you know, don't turn left at the intersection on June 6th, 1995, or anything like that, or something like that. I can think of but um i don't know i think i think just sort of keep up the hard work and don't get discouraged there's there's plenty of times in life where i've gotten discouraged but i've been lucky enough to have windfalls or good positive role models or people come along and help me and uh you know keep my my chin to the grindstone kind of thing so i'd probably just say something like that just sort of like stay the course don't get discouraged keep working good good things will happen you know sometimes you got to be lucky but you got to be good to get lucky too right so
0: where where can our listeners find each of your three projects online? So websites or social media, where do they go? I'll put a link in, in the description, but yeah, for those just uh, listening.
1: I mean, you can you can find us on any of the streamers, uh sheepdogs.com. I think oh god, I should know. I think it's shamusmusic.com, but again, you can find just it. Just Google. Uh, yeah, Google it. Uh, we're on, you know, on you can find us on Instagram and stuff too. Same with bros. Uh yeah, check us out. Lots of, lots of music to sink your teeth into if you if you're into it. Yeah. And
0: is there anything you'd like to say to the fans that have supported you all the way from the beginning?
1: Just thanks. Appreciate the listens, appreciate the spins. Uh we'll keep making keep making the music if you keep listening to it. <laughs>
0: So as we wrap up, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for your lifelong pursuit of mastery as a musician, as a singer songwriter. Uh, I want to thank you for being a great ambassador uh, for Saskatchewan. I mentioned to you that that's where my yeah. family is originally from, so you you put Saskatchewan on the map and you you make everyone proud that's from there. Um, I, I want every
1: show. <laughs> uh, you you have a flag. You said, yeah, we 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 tape it to the organ that I play for most most shows that we've played. So we we fly it at uh, every show. I feel That's like a lot of people don't know what it is for the most part, but... That's all good. Now, now
0: now, they know to look for it. Uh, I want to thank you um, for putting out great music with all three projects. I have songs from the Sheepdogs. I have songs from Bros on my Great Songs playlist on Spotify that I'm playing every day. Uh, and now I have the Seamus album on my list of great albums from 2023. So thank you for putting out such great music that is is worth listening to, that's become the soundtrack to uh, the lives of many people around the world. I want to thank you for providing quotes for Lowell Campbell and for the Dream Boats. Uh, You helped make the podcast better uh, by by being a part of it. And last but not least, I want to thank you for this interview as a fan of your music, for sitting down with me for the last two-plus hours, answering all my ridiculous questions, uh, things I wanted to know the answers to for a long time. So, Seamus, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Uh, Joel, It's my pleasure. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. So to our listeners, to the Seamus fans, to the Sheepdogs fans, to the Bros fans, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode. If you've enjoyed today's episode of the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe, like, comment, and share. What I want to know is who would you like me to sit down with next for a two-hour deep dive interview? You can let me know by reaching out to me on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Mastery. Joelle is J-O-E-L. And you can find me on Twitter and Snapchat at Mastery. So I am done. I am complete. I approve this message, and I'll see you on the next episode.